Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. Hello. We are so happy to be with you today to start our time travel series. We have an extra skip in our step today because this is the fourth series here on the Dura Sisters podcast. Rihanna and I have been doing this since September of 2020. We made that year come to a good end because of our podcasts. (laughs) And I'm really proud of us. Week by week, rain or shine, pandemic or not, we are here chugging away at the podcast. And we have made it to our fourth series. It just makes me so happy because we have talked about maybe before we started doing the podcast, we had talked about it for a little while. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we are here doing it, committing to it, to you, to each other every single week makes me so happy and just reminds me that we can do anything we set our minds to. Well said, Ashlyn. I honestly didn't really believe that this would come true. And now we're so many months into it and so many series in and I'm just over the moon slingshotting around the sun to be podcasting with you guys. So I'm just very happy to be here. And Ashlyn, I'm very glad that you chose time travel as our fourth series because we have had a freaking blast with this series. So Ashlyn, tell us a little bit why you chose this time travel series. So actually, this has a little bit of an origin story, which I don't know if Rihanna knows about. Ooh. But we have mentioned before that our family was a big reason why we started watching Star Trek. And there was one time I was at Target with my grandma and Rihanna, and she bought a DVD collection of Mirror Universe episodes in Star Trek. And there was a second disc that had time travel episodes on it. And it was for every series. Like it had original all the way up to Enterprise and I thought that was so awesome and I watched those episodes a lot because what else do you do when you're 13 and you have a DVD (laughs) and so I kind of stole I guess the idea from the official box set but I've always been so intrigued by time travel and it's one of my favorite plot devices in science fiction and just fiction in general so I'm really excited to explore what Star Trek does with time travel because it's kind of a unique brand compared to a lot of other series. So I'm just excited to see what kind of science they stick to or absolutely do not stick to. And just to talk about the incontinuities and everything in between with the series. That's so cool. I vaguely remember that box set, but that's amazing that you thought of it because of that. I am just thrilled that this is our next series. It's been so much fun. Of course, we are covering the original series today. And Ashlyn, would you mind telling us which episodes and movie we covered? (laughs) Yes, we watched Tomorrow is Yesterday, City on the Edge of Forever, Assignment Earth, Yesteryear from the animated series, and of course, The Voyage Home, the fourth Star Trek movie. Yes, (laughs) I mean, what would we do if we didn't have that in there? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. 
So Rihanna, I have a couple questions to get us started. And I want to explain a little bit about the rules that we've set for this series, because there are quite a few time travel episodes in Star Trek. And so we have specifically narrowed it down to time traveling that occurs because of humans, Mm -hmm. like because humans choose to go back into time or because someone else is manipulating them to go back in time. This does not include anomalies. So if there's any type of anomaly involved, we are just not talking about it because we will have a series at some point that's on anomalies, which is also going to be a really effing amazing series. Yes. Think about all the anomalies. Oh, man, (laughs) it's going to be so long and amazing. Mm -hmm. So this is just human-related time travel. Rihanna, we were talking about different means of time travel. I'm wondering for you, do you have a favorite sci-fi book or movie or TV show that explains time travel that makes a lot of sense to you? Something that's been really popular lately is, of course, the MCU, the Mm -hmm. Marvel Cinematic Universe, and their use of time travel in Endgame. So I'm wondering for you, Rihanna, what sticks out to you when you think about time travel? What's your favorite explanation of it? What makes sense to you? Well, I have two answers to that because I have one that is one of my favorite just time travel circumstances, but doesn't make any sense. And then I have one that sort of makes more sense. (laughs) Okay, please. So firstly, I want to talk a little bit about X-Men Days of Futures Past because Mm. that's one that doesn't make any sense because we just have mutants sending each other back in time and only because of Wolverine's really strong body (laughs) and projecting his mind into his younger self. Is he able to go back in time to the 70s? Elliot Page is projecting Hugh Jackman back in time. It's not even Hugh. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Wolverine's not even doing the work. It's (laughs) Yeah, he's just laying there. Yeah, I think that is a really fun circumstance of time travel because it's not something I wouldn't generally think of how time travel would work was to use your own brain to project into your younger body. Like that's a really interesting concept to me that of course cannot ever happen (laughs) unless we suddenly start having mutants pop up in our world. The thing is, is I don't really know. I'm not a scientist. I can't explain any time travel in a way that makes sense to me. So I'll also just say Doctor Who because the TARDIS, (laughs) I feel like, you know, the TARDIS is a really good way to time travel and very secure and a lot of crazy rules come out of the TARDIS, but it's always very consistent with the rules. Again, not very well explained. I can't really think of an instance where I found time travel to be well explained where I'm like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. So I'm sorry I don't have a great answer for you for this. So I'm really curious, Ashlyn, how about you? What Did you find a time travel method or technology or fandom or something that really resonated with you? Well, first of all, do not apologize because (laughs) I loved your answers and I loved that they were different from what I was going to say too, Mm. because generally, you know, our brains are so closely related. Uh I thought we were going to have the same examples. Yeah. I totally agree with you, especially Doctor Who really sets a consistent example of time travel. Mm -hmm. For me... My favorite example of time travel, even though it doesn't really make sense, is Back to the Future. Oh. Because, you know, we have Marty and Doc and the hilarious moment where 
if Marty starts to change things too much, he will start to disappear or certain things, any elements from the future, once they're back in time, begin to just vanish. Mm -hmm. There's the iconic scene when they're at this love under the sea dance at prom in high school and Marty's arms are disappearing as he's playing this like amazing rock and roll solo because Uh his mom and dad are not going to get together. I love the stakes of that and I love visually how it looks just to remind the audience, oh man, the stakes are so high right now that Marty might not exist. Yeah. So it does make sense, but I love Back to the Future and how it does time travel. Absolutely. I love also the vehicle. I mean, the car that Doc uses is amazing. And similar like with the TARDIS, we have so many cool devices that are time travel machines. Yeah. (laughs) My favorite instance that makes the most sense though And this is a spoiler for Dragon Ball Z fans, but there is a moment in Dragon Ball Z, I think one of the coolest moments in the entire series where Trunks, who this is Vegeta's son, we've only known him as a kid the whole time, he appears as a grown adult and he's called Future Trunks because his world has been devastated by Frieza, who's the main villain, the big the main arc of this series and he has come back in time to save the earth but his future the future that trunks comes from adult trunks there's no hope for it there's no way that he can change the future he can only change and hope to create a new future for Mm. the earth so his coming back in time creates a parallel universe and for me i really like this explanation of time travel because it opens up the possibility of different universes and different realities and allows tiny details, you know, different choices that people make to branch off into these spiraling fractal-like effects. And so I think the way that Dragon Ball Z, even though it sounds hilarious, this like kind of kid show explains time travel really makes sense to me and I really, really enjoy it. Yeah, Future Trunks is one of the coolest characters. So anyway, there's my plug for DBZ. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I want to watch it now. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Uh, You should. That show is eternal. So Wow. Ashlyn, thank you for those examples. I hadn't even thought about Back to the Future and I am really curious about Dragon Ball. And I think what you said about Dragon Ball Z is also sort of reminding me that we were trying to decide if we wanted to include Star Trek 2009 as a part of our time travel series for this episode, but because it creates a parallel world and because their intention wasn't to go back to change something, the black hole did it. And even though, yes, they were back in time, it wasn't the same type of time travel that we see in the rest of the original series and in Voyage Home. And so we decided we're going to save that because we're also going to have a really amazing Mirror Universe series coming up sometime in the future. And that is when we can include parallel universes as well. So don't fear. We'll be talking about Star Trek 2009, but we decided it's a little too complicated and not enough of the time travel that we're investigating in this series to include it. Thank you for that beautiful tie-in and explanation. Rihanna is the master of segues. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It's all of the uh, English major essays I've been writing throughout the years. So, (laughs) Yeah, it's just autopilot at this point. (laughs) Literally, my factory setting, yes. So for the last series, for Love and Affection, we had a cute little segment where we talked about what's your favorite ship. So for this one, we obviously can't do that for time travel. So Rihanna, I am wondering if you could travel to the future 
we're, we're saying from 2021, if you could hop in a time machine or slingshot yourself around the sun, <laughs> which episode would you like to live through with the original series cast? And this is not time travel episodes only. This is any episode. Which one would you like to live through with them? I have a quick caveat question to this. Yes. Am yes. I a part of the crew or am I a fly on the wall? I think you are like Dax and Cisco, okay. where you're dressed up in the outfit and you can interact if you want, but you don't have to. Okay, okay, wonderful. Hmm. Oh my god, there's so many good ones. I'm trying to decide. You know, I think... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm thinking about like 18 of them that I would want to no, be in. I know. No, this is a tough one. This is like choosing your spot in Catan. This is a hard <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, I think that I would really like to be a part of Devil in the Dark. Oh, wow. That really hit me. I love that episode. <laughs> yeah, you know, oh. I, I was thinking, oh, maybe Trouble with Tribbles or Arena. I'd like to see Kirk fight the Gorn. But honestly... No, I would love to see Spock mind meld with this Horda, learn about her children and about her species to make this incredible scientific and medical discovery to help save these miners. Yeah, it'd be kind of scary down in those caves. Like a lot of people are dying. I'd be a little stressed, but it'd be so worth it because just the ways in which the characters interact in that episode, the discoveries they make are revolutionary. And I don't know, I think that especially because Spock is in the limelight in this, then, you know, that makes it even better for me because I want any episode where Spock is like the main character and the main event and he really gets a good run of it in this. So I'd love to be just like an instant coming down with my tricorder watching Spock from the corner of my eye. Oh my God, look at him go. Look at him oh. go. He's doing great. <laughs> So that's my answer. I, I love that answer. That is such a wholesome answer. And I might have said this on the pod before, but if you ask most of the actors from the original series what their favorite episode is, it is Devil in the Dark yeah. for the exact reasons that you stated. Because Spock is so cute in that one. No. <laughs> 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 but just because the horde is so awesome yeah, and mccoy thinks he can cure rainy day like it's just great <laughs> <laughs> yeah with the cement hands it's beautiful yeah totally how about you ashlyn what episode would you like to travel back to or forward this to also, this is also a hard one for me because i really like to be involved in historical events like mm. i would love to see for example the signing of the kittimer accords but Whoa. We never see that happen. I know it's kind of mentioned about in the movies. Yeah, that's what yeah. I would love to, but yes. there's no show that covers that. Mm -hmm. So um, so I think even though it's kind of weird, I don't know why, but I want to go forward to see Space Seed. Okay, yes. Yeah, because you get to see the humans of World War Three of the eugenics wars. You get to see Khan and his crew mm -hmm. and just what a amazing and terrifying person that he is and you get to see kirk and crew interact with him and i'm not saying i would be the crewman who mutinies and joins Khan, <laughs> but i'm saying it's a possibility you've got the hot ricardo watablad ashland i mean who doesn't he's beautiful yeah i mean so, he's yeah. beautiful in space seed and in wrath of Khan, so <laughs> that's fair I just think it'd be really interesting to see that interaction and he's kind of a piece of history too. Absolutely. So. Ashlyn, I really like that answer. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think we've talked enough about our setup. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's time. I'm ready to discuss these episodes. Oh, me too. And Ashlyn, I think first off, we should talk about the science behind these episodes or the lack thereof or how they explain how each of them time travels. So 
Let's talk Absolutely. about that. Absolutely. I was actually just going to start off with that Great. in Tomorrow is Yesterday, which is the first time travel episode in Star Trek. It comes in kind of late in season, uh, one. season one, I think mm-hmm. episode 20 right yeah. in season one. So their explanation, and they do not show this at all, but this is literally all from the captain's log. This was, again, a scenario where Kirk is saying the events that are happening, and I have my pen, and I'm writing as quickly as I can, because yeah. Kirk is just rattling off facts here similar to flocks rattling off his family facts <laughs> yeah, exactly. in the family series um, <laughs> so kirk says that a black hole was pulling them in okay that sounds sure sounds normal mm-hmm. they were trying to do full reverse you might imagine maybe the climax of star trek 2009 when i'm describing this mm-hmm. the force that it took to pull them clear of the black hole sent them back through time <laughs> Ashlyn, so quick clarification. I have a question yeah. on. He said yeah. a black star of gravitational direction. Do you think that that's a black hole? Are they the same thing? Mm. Scientists maybe, out there? Maybe, maybe it was turning into a black hole, like it was doing the transition from dying star. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm hole. thinking. It's like a little in-between phase. I don't know. Yeah, he called it a rubber band snap is essentially how they felt like they were getting snapped back into the past. And I love that they just happened to end up at Earth. They were nearby, so it kind of makes sense. But also they weren't at Earth. I feel like if they were near Earth, but also then if there was a black star of gravitational direction near Earth, it probably would have been very dangerous. So yeah, yeah, that's a different conversation. Yeah. Yeah, and I I know this is strictly kind of anomaly, but basically the starship, the way it reacted to being pulled that quickly backwards, I guess is what sent them back through time. So again, we can't really look too far into it because it's just going to start falling apart. What I think is really cool is that they land in the 60s. And this is really reminding me of the movie The Right Stuff, which is a three-hour basically historical fiction starting with the pilots in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. Starting with Jaeger, Um, yeah. yeah, Starting with Jaeger and then going all the way to the moon landing and everything. Seeing this pilot who is flying very high in the atmosphere to go intercept the Enterprise really had me thinking about the right stuff. And I'm sure it was intentional to make audiences remember that, hey, this is happening. The space program exists. And what would happen if the Enterprise interacted with our current space program? So I think it's a really cool concept, even if the logic to get there is a little funny. Totally. So I have a question for you right out of the gate, Rihanna. Mm -hmm. What are the rules with the Prime Directive in this situation? Because... I think my interpretation of it is that, and okay, well, okay, before I even ask you that, I have another question Mm -hmm. because we know in Deep Space Nine that there's a time travel agency that controls all the time travel going on in Starfleet. So do they exist yet because it's only the 22nd century or maybe they do because they're in the 23rd, 24th century also? (laughs) Do they exist? And then what the F is happening with the Prime Directive? Okay, you are asking the right questions, Ashlyn. Unfortunately, I wish I had more answers for you. What I can remember from Trials and Tribulations in Deep Space Nine is that the Temporal Agency said that James C. Kirk was the largest violator of time travel. <laughs> like he was cited multiple times, which is we're going to talk about all these times. So 
right off the bat, we know that they are aware of Kirk's discretions, but I do not think it existed until Kirk. I think that Kirk made them realize they need a temporal agency because they're like, damn, this captain keeps violating all of these time periods and just hanging out in them and beaming random people aboard. It's a hot mess. And so I'm wondering about the Prime Directive too. And I'm also wondering why in the world Spock didn't say anything the whole time about it. Spock is the number one stickler about the Prime Directive. And he said absolutely nothing on the subject in any of these time travel episodes, including the movie. <laughs> so first of all, that shakes me to my core because everything I know about Spock is changing because of this. But also I'm wondering if going into your own past, obviously there has to be a prime directive, but I wonder if because there might not be a temporal agency yet, that perhaps they don't themselves know what the rules are and what the baselines are. And honestly, I think if they had more time to prepare or if they had, I don't know, a class in Starfleet about time travel, about what to do if you accidentally get thrown back into the past, especially into Earth's past, if they had just one course on that, like, okay, quickly get into old timey clothes, quickly find a newspaper, quickly, I don't know, stay hidden. Don't just be in the middle of a town square. <laughs> There's so many ways that they could avoid all of the problems that they had in these episodes. They are just clearly not concerned about being seen. I mean, they say they are. They're like, oh, we don't want anyone to see us. And then they immediately get caught. So I don't think they're being very careful. And it's very frustrating. It bugs me to no end. <laughs> but yeah, Ashlyn, I think that they probably developed the temporal agency because of Kirk and company. I think you're totally right about that. Thank you for your answer. I forgot that part of Trials and Tribulations, <laughs> yeah. so thank you for warming my heart. You're welcome. Um, I think that even if there was a class at Starfleet Academy, Kirk would not have gone or <laughs> would not have paid attention. Although he was walking books, so I think he would have. That's true. I don't know. And okay, also, I think Spock did have one sentence, to be fair, mm -hmm. to your beloved husband. Yeah. I think he did say something like, oh, we have to be careful. And that's it. Which is still <laughs> not enough. It's, it's not, not enough. It's not on par for Spock's adherence to the rules. And I'm just like, what were you thinking, my my love? <laughs> I, I'm just thinking also that the I, and again I know no one in the original series cares about the prime directive no but to me if I was a captain I would say that earth right now in the 60s is absolutely a pre-warp civilization at this time and so your number one priority is not show yourself to anyone and so I'm also wondering about McCoy a little bit, because don't you think he could develop some memory erasing drug so they could beam this pilot aboard Men in Black, his memory, and then <laughs> back down? Or, um, I don't know, there's an actual instance in the original series of Spock erasing part of Kirk's memory. So oh. why in the world didn't Spock do that to this pilot, oh. to Captain Christopher? Literally wow. why? <laughs> Wow. Wow. Yeah. Do okay, you remember? That's a great point. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I do remember. I know. I'm very confused about this. Okay. So I think we can easily get caught up in the minutiae and the details of the idiocy of Kirk uh -huh. in this. But I want to kind of shift a little bit and talk about Captain Christopher since you just brought him up. I thought something cool. So after he is beamed aboard and he's shaken. <laughs> 
yeah. by everything that he's seeing. A woman crewman walks by and Captain Christopher is just all eyes. I mean, he stares her down. His whole head turns as she walks by. And the sexy and music she- plays. Yes, the sexy saxophone plays. <laughs> and he says, a woman. And Kirk says, a crewman. As if, you know, Kirk is like the most woke being you've ever met. <laughs> but it does make Kirk look great and the 23rd century. It makes them look great. Yeah. Because this guy, I mean, are there any female pilots in the Air Force in the 60s? I really Highly doubt, doubt it. it. Yeah, <laughs> I really doubt it. Even today in 2021, Air Force suits for pregnant women were just approved. So Holy moly. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so I really thought that was cool. And I know that's Gene Ronberry and everyone on Star Trek just trying to say, hey, guys, let's allow women into these fields. Yeah, please. <laughs> women in STEM. Women in the military. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Absolutely. So I thought that was a really cool moment. Ashlyn, I'm glad you brought that up. Real quick, I did just look up on Memory Alpha because I completely forgot that Temporal Agency existed during Archer's time. So it definitely existed during Kirk's time, but because it's original series, I think they obviously didn't know they were going to build this entire multi-decade canon. And so I think this is truly just the temporal agents were like, it's Kirk. There's nothing we can do. He's going to keep violating it. You know, I mean, what's the slap on the wrist going to do for Kirk? That would be my fictional explanation of this. But I do remember now, of course, Archer dealt with many temporal agents and I can't believe I forgot it. So thank you, Memory Alpha, for reminding me. And it's mostly just original series. So we just got to like shrug, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, and... I mean, in fairness to Kirk, he does get the job done, even if it's unorthodox. Everything turns out okay in the end. So, you know, McCoy or Spock doesn't wipe Christopher's mind, but they do send him back into the past before the events even occurred. That fixes everything, actually. (laughs) I mean, truly, they do fix pretty much every mistake they make. And so maybe that's why the temporal agents never came after them because they're like, well, they found a loophole, so we're not going to slap them on the wrist for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And if, you know, if that loophole involves whales, it's all the better for the human race. Yeah. So. I mean, they always are doing it to save humanity, so we'll give them a pass. <laughs> Ashlyn, yeah. So I also want to talk a little bit about Captain Christopher's reactions when he beams aboard because like you said, the woman comment is really interesting. I also loved the fact of when he's coming on board the bridge and he says I never believed in little green men and then Spock turns to him with his Spock glory and says neither have I and (laughs) it's a fantastic moment because this is when Christopher realizes whoa this is an actual alien like I'm staring at an alien right now I just love that Captain Christopher really takes all of this in stride he is very much on board with the fact that this is a reality he's not confused thinking am i hallucinating am i dying what's going on which would probably be my first reaction if i got beamed aboard on the enterprise i was very surprised by his poise in this especially when spock lets slip that he has a son who ends up starting the saturn station but he doesn't even have a son yet this is why they probably don't have a class at the academy to teach you hey don't tell people about their future sons hey, don't tell them about their future at all. It's like, you know, all the Greek stories that are like, oh, the Oracle. Yeah, the Oracle. Yeah. Once the fortune teller tells you your future, you're bound to make it happen. <laughs> well, or also like, that's so Raven, my favorite. <laughs> 
prophecy show. You know, that is a yeah. great, great example. Raven can go head to head with the Oracle any day mm-hmm. of the week. So. And come out stronger. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I just thought that he was really taking all of this in stride, including the fact that his son was going to be this famous factor in space travel history. I thought that was a cool fact. Like, okay, Spock, when you're looking up someone's Wikipedia, don't just blurt out their <laughs> whole life. We've all made that mistake before. <laughs> I totally agree with you that seeing his poise and professionalism, this is, of course, Captain Christopher, I could really see why his son would go on to do such amazing things Mm -hmm. because it seems like he's got a cool dad. And it did kind of hurt when Spock initially was like, I Googled you and you're nothing. (laughs) He's like, you make no blot in history. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, there's no purpose for you. Brianna, you brought this up earlier, but let's talk about when they go on Earth because they figure out that Captain Christopher took photos of the Enterprise and if the military has those the Earth will go insane and it will totally F up time yeah so they have to go and Kirk brings Sulu down and I thought this was a really cool choice because of course Sulu is a pilot and Mm -hmm. if Sulu had joined the Air Force back in time he would be an Air Force pilot totally so I thought it was awesome that he got to bring Sulu down to see the base and (laughs) to help him steal the footage. I, again, think that they could have done better at not exposing themselves at all and not just randomly beaming people up. I mean, this is a serious amount of errors that they make. It made me feel like I was watching the Cubs in the playoffs in 2003. Oh, no. Why did you bring that up? (laughs) I mean, error after error, you know? That one's for our dad who just died a little inside. (laughs) Wow. But anyway. Yeah, I I agree, Ashlyn. There was so many things that they could have done differently. For instance, how about Scotty just beam them directly into the records room and then you're good to go? There's not even radiation on the Air Force Base because sometimes that's a factor. It's like, oh, there's too much radiation. You can't beam down. No, No. they just didn't even think about it. No. (laughs) And it seems like Scotty would have some sort of idea of schematics if they can scan the base to realize where things are. He's a very good transporter chief. He can figure it out. Then they end up beaming this other security guard up to the Enterprise, who is just shaken by all of this, obviously. (laughs) Then Kirk ends up fighting people. He's like throwing his literal body (laughs) at at the security guards, at the army men, at the base. I mean, it is just a disaster. I wish that they had thought any of this through because they're also really bad at sneaking around. Oh, but I think the reason also he brought Sulu down was because it's much easier to have humans down there in case they get caught instead of Spock having to wear another hat. So (laughs) you make a good point. And also Spock is up on the ship. McCoy keeps bugging him and he says, Spock, shouldn't you be calculating how we get back to the future? And Spock's giving him this cold look like I am calculating (laughs) how to get back to the future. Spock's like, I am always multitasking. So I don't know what you're talking about. I also want to bring up a very important trend, and that is that without Spock, they would never be able to get home. Never. Never. Because he always is the one mentally calculating how to get back home. We see this now. We're going to see this not in the next episode we're going to talk about, but in all the rest of them. Mm -hmm. It's all because of Spock and his genius. There's literally no one else on the ship who could even attempt this if Spock was injured or maimed. No, absolutely (laughs) not. Like They have a very very 
smart crew compliment and none of them hold a candle to Spock's intelligence, especially when it comes to these types of calculations. Another thing I thought was really interesting and what I really like about watching these time travel episodes is seeing them interact with old technology because Kirk has a really funny response when he sees the old records. He's like, I've seen these records in an old museum. And I'm like, cool, great, buddy. Do you know how to use them? Do you know what they are? Like how much knowledge do you have? I mean, how much knowledge you retain of seeing something in a museum once? It's so funny to see them interact with these types of technology when they're trying to find the exact strip of the film that had the Enterprise taken a picture on it. You know, I mean, they navigate it fairly well in this episode, considering the fact that they only what saw this in a museum. Yeah, I was thinking that to myself also. I do wonder if there's just nothing to do in Iowa. So when Kirk was growing up, he was just going to ancient museums <laughs> and and really like beefing up on his history. Uh-huh. <laughs> like a history buff. So that would track. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I wonder even for myself, like, will my kids know how to use a VCR if we don't have one? Like if they just went to their friend's house who had a VCR, would they even know what to do with it? <laughs> I don't think that kind of knowledge, even though the technology is less advanced, I still don't think it's very intuitive. Yeah. And so you can just say props to Starfleet for training their people so well. (laughs) They obviously are rolling with the punches. They're like, we don't know what this does, but clearly it does something that we need. So we'll just take, I love how they end up taking the whole thing. (laughs) They're like, let's just take this whole film. It's fine. It won't matter at all to no. history, but it is a cool prop to bring back to the 23rd century. You though. betcha. That's- so I think it's about time we warped out of this episode, Rihanna, yeah. and I want to talk about how they get home. Mm-hmm. Here we go. They're going to attempt their slingshot around the sun. This is what Spock figures out. I think it was Spock. It might have been Kirk, but one of them explained, as you accelerate, you go back in time. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... As they're accelerating, getting closer and closer to the sun, they're going to beam back Captain Christopher and this poor, scared, stiffless guy. (laughs) They're going to beam them both back in time to before any of this happened. And then they are going to break the rubber band and do the loop around the sun. And then it's going to shoot them forward is the logic. And it works. <laughs> yeah. So I have a couple questions about this. First yeah. of all, it kind of reminded me of in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, where they catch up with their timeline. They catch up Captain Christopher and that security guard and beam them directly in when they beamed them out. Kind of like when Harry and Hermione enter the hospital wing right as they were disappearing. Yes. I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen this before. <laughs> but that makes some sense to me. We should say that Harry Potter did what Star Trek did. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my brain is going backwards, but you're absolutely right. My brain is going backwards in time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Ashlyn. Yeah, and so I think that, sure, I guess if you slingshot around the sun, you go backwards in time, but how in the world did they know when to stop? How did they get to the future when Spock was like, okay, 50 years to go? I'm like, how, where are you in space? Did you find a random space corridor? How are you traveling? They don't explain it because how could you, I guess? (laughs) I don't know. Ashlyn, do you have any idea how this was achieved? 
No, I was also laughing that Spock was like, 10 years to go, as if they're on an elevator. (laughs) One floor to go. We're almost there. I don't know. But I love it. And it makes me really respect how smart Spock is, that they were able to beam those people directly where they were before. I mean, that's crazy. That's that's so smart. Right? (laughs) And I really like what Captain Christopher said right before they beam him back. He said, thanks for the look ahead. And I think that's a really Mm. cool parting word, you know, because... I would also be so thankful just to have that experience, even though I know I'm not going to remember it, just to be like, wow, we have a future. Our Earth is not going to crumble because of climate change. Wow, this is great. So anyway, sorry, I made it sad. (laughs) Back to menu. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and I think that's a perfect transition because in the next episode we're going to talk about, there is absolutely a character who believes in the future of humanity, and that is Edith Keeler, because now we're going to talk about City on the Edge of Forever. Possibly the greatest Star Trek episode of all time. I'm going to stop you right there. I think you can fight me. I think it might be one of the best television episodes of all time. I'm not going to fight you. I agree. I don't, (laughs) it might be an exaggeration, but no no matter how many times I watch this episode and we won't go into any details about the production or writing things in this podcast, but just briefly, there is not a second wasted in this episode. Mm -hmm. Everything has a purpose. Everything is beautifully crafted together. And moi, I mean- what a what a diamond in the rough here. Well, and it's not even a rough. I mean, most of the original no. series yeah. is pretty good. I mean, well, a, a diamond in a pile of diamonds, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I absolutely agree. I think that also this episode paved the way for a lot of future ideas that writers used for Star Trek. I mean, we literally, this is spoilers for Discovery, so watch out for Discovery Season 3 if you haven't seen it. But they literally bring back the Guardian of Forever in the most recent series of Star Trek that just got released. So I'm saying that like that kind of longevity of an idea is so impressive. And we see the Garden of Forever again. We're going to talk about it in the episode yesteryear from the animated series. So transcendent. I mean, I love that the Guardian pops up in different timelines in our timeline, you know, as well as it pops up in their timeline a lot. It's just so cool. And I'm just so freaking excited that we finally get to talk about this episode because I've been waiting since before I even knew we wanted to do this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely been the elephant in the room of the Dara Sisters podcast. Why haven't these amazing ladies talked about sitting on the edge of forever? (laughs) Well, now it's time. So Rihanna, you just brought up The Guardian, mm-hmm. and I was really interested to rewatch the beginning of, I mean, this whole episode, obviously, sure. but specifically the first couple minutes of this episode is really interesting because it describes the planet that The Guardian is on. Spock says that they're passing through ripples in time. He says they're going through turbulent waves of space displacement, and once they get onto the planet itself, the Guardian is the point that all of time is rippling from. So I don't think there's anything else on this planet. It's just the Guardian, but there's ruins for miles. Mm -hmm. So clearly there was some sort of civilization. And it had me actually thinking about the Mayans and the Incas before the Spanish Inquisition wiped everybody out with smallpox. Mm ancient civilizations had very advanced technology and understandings of math and science that 
we might not even know about today. But of course, all of that is lost. So we have no idea exactly what they knew. And so The Guardian kind of gave off those vibes to me. Like it's from, I mean, Spock says it's like 10,000 centuries old is how old The Guardian is. This is a really ancient piece of technology. Kirk asks even, are you a being or are you a machine? And he says, I am both. (laughs) Um, And I am neither. Yes. I have just so many questions about The Guardian and we don't get any answers, but I thought it was interesting that they were able to even land on the planet without going through some space travel. And maybe the planet just exists in a place where there is no time and they only resume their current time period once they've left orbit. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I have a couple thoughts on this because it kind of reminded me, we just did an episode with the Nerd Trek podcast about the Royale and Next Generation. And it kind of reminded me of that negative space that exists on that one planet. You know, obviously that's a little different because it's not time, but I was wondering if it was similar like negative time space, you know. I also have a kind of goofy headcanon that if Doctor Who and Star Trek were ever to have a crossover, that maybe the Garden of Forever is the ruins in Gallifrey. Oh. You know, like that would be so cool. Oh. <laughs> That's my little baby headcanon if Doctor Who and Star Trek were in the same universe, but obviously they're not. So we don't we don't know. We don't know much about this planet and we continue to not know much about it. Even in the animated series and Discovery, it's very much a mystery still. And I kind of like that about it. I like that time and itself is such a mystery. And here the Guardian is even being very mysterious. Spock is very irritated by his riddles. He's like, why are you speaking in riddles? Just tell us plain what's going on. And the Guardian's like, nah, I'm too cool for that. I also like that the Guardian calls Spock primitive and his knowledge of technology primitive. And Spock is very offended. So offended. His eyebrow shot all the way up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess if you're going to be disrespected by something, being disrespected by the Guardian is the coolest thing. Yeah. You know, like I'd be all right with that. <laughs> we see it described as a time portal. And what I find interesting is that the Guardian has, I think, access to probably time on every planet is my guess because of the yesterday episode, they're back at Orion. But it appears in this episode of City on the Edge of Forever that the Guardian has access to Earth's past. And so it is starting to gradually show Earth's history. And it's going pretty fast. Like it's moving along pretty quickly through human history. I don't know if it went all the way back to pre-humans, but it looked like it started sort of with human history. I was kind of interested with the mechanism of that because when McCoy jumps through, they are like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Can you show us that again and go a little slower? And he's like, no. He's like, I have one setting essentially. (laughs) And so I'm curious. I'm like, if he is everything and nothing, and if he can do all this cool stuff, why can't you go a little slower on history? Like, it's interesting that he has this factory setting that he can't go any slower He, I say because it sounds like a male voice, but the Guardian is probably genderless. (laughs) But (laughs) it is impressive that once McCoy jumps through and then Spock and Kirk are encouraged to then jump through because the Enterprise is gone because McCoy obviously changed something in the future. Luckily, Spock was recording on his tricorder. So he has a general idea of what time period in history of Earth they step through with a couple day buffer. I mean, they did pretty well. But it's kind of interesting that it can't get more accurate. I want to address a couple of things that you brought up. First of all, 
I think that The Guardian was presenting human history because the majority of the people who beam down are humans. That's my guess. And The Guardian can probably sense, oh, you want to know your history? I got it right here. (laughs) I assume if it was a group of Vulcans, it would show Vulcan history. Mm -hmm. Not sure. That's just a guess. I love Spock's reaction, and you already brought this up, where he doesn't really facepalm, but he mentally does because he realizes he hasn't been recording. Yeah. And this is one of the biggest discoveries in all of creation. This is a huge deal. Yeah, it's like finding the sphere data, you know? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And Spock didn't even think to record until halfway through. (laughs) Spock's recording is the most important part of this episode. His recording to know exactly when McCoy jumped through, then to see the future change. And then again, once they're on Earth in the 30s, the whole plot depends upon what he captures in his tricorder. So again, thank you, Spock for saving the day. Literally. Yeah. And for calculating, like you said, a reasonable amount of time. We've talked about Doctor Who a little bit, but there's often a problem in Doctor Who where the doctor tries to come back to a certain period of time and it might be a year later mm-hmm. or 30 years later than he meant to, which, you know, to him in the span of 900 years, 30 years seems like nothing, but for a human life, that is devastating. Yeah. The first time I saw this, I remember thinking, what if they go and it's like a year before McCoy comes, right. you know? I mean, they would have to go domestic and just buy a house and live in this place until McCoy showed up. Yeah. yeah I mean, this would be life-changing. Well, and that's the thing that's really wild about this is that Kirk then turns to Scotty, Uhura, and the other officers who would beam down onto this planet because they're the only ones left because the Enterprise doesn't exist anymore. And he says, if you think it's been long enough, I want each of you to step through and try it because this is all we have. And if you don't succeed, then you have to just make your life there. But anyway, I just think that that is quite the sacrifice that they're all willing to make to try and change their future. Just again, the Starfleet dedication is staggering. I was thinking about this as well, but they have no other option. (laughs) Starfleet doesn't exist anymore. They're the only surviving members of this previous timeline in the galaxy, in the universe. And so I think it's a really smart idea. Kirk is a great captain because Mm -hmm. he's like, I'm trusting you guys if we can't do it. And also, to be fair, whatever happens of whatever Kirk and Spock are able to do in The Guardian, it will reflect in what's showing in The Guardian. That Scotty Ahura and... Random crewman number one and and a random guy. (laughs) Yeah, and a random guy see. Yeah. So at least they'll be able to know. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I thought it was a really desperate act And we don't see this very much until we get to the movies, honestly. Like these kind of really, really tremendous high stakes. I think the highest stakes are in these time travel episodes we're talking about because I see multiple themes in these episodes where they're like, this is the only chance we have. Scotty was even saying in the episode before this, we were talking about tomorrow's yesterday, that he was like, we could blow up on our way back. It's very risky. And Kirk's like, what else are we going to do? We have to do it. We have to try. And so that is the mentality of these time travel episodes is we have to try because the literal future depends on it. What we haven't talked about yet, but what is obvious if you've seen the episode, is that McCoy has accidentally injected himself with the cortisine, a full dose. So he's full panic, paranoia, crazy mode. Yeah, two drops will save your life. The rest of it will send you spiraling. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so... That is what Kirk and Spock are here to avoid, to stop whatever McCoy has changed in the past. They arrive in 1930. 
in tomorrow's yesterday, what we just talked about, we were really harping on they didn't even change their clothes before they beamed down to the earth. Mm-hmm. Situation, I have much more sympathy for them because they didn't have any clothes to change into. And they had little time and, to do it. Yeah. Yes. And so they're really desperate. I mean, we see them having to steal clothes from laundry lines Mm -hmm. and they have to live in a homeless shelter for a little bit. And I think it's really interesting that this takes place during the depression in America. And we're going through what historians might call another depression now. I mean, the economy has had so many ups and downs in the past couple of years. I think it's really interesting to rewatch this episode now and to see that there were just common people living in the homeless shelters. And today we think of a lot of homeless people as being drug addicts or addicted to alcohol, or they have some sort of mental health problems, but that's not true Mm -hmm. all the time. There are people who have been failed by the system and who have nowhere to live or live in an expensive state like California, for Mm -hmm. example, and they're evicted because everything's super expensive and there's no work available. I mean, this is a likely scenario that we're describing. People are pitching up tents because they can't afford to pay rent. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was really timely to be rewatching this episode now and just see how loving that Edith Keeler is when Kirk and Spock bust into her basement. She doesn't judge them. She's like, I don't like that you stole the clothes, but I can employ you here and you can help me with the upkeep of this place and we can create our own little community. She's kind of got her own system of rehabilitation here. It's really incredible. I really quick want to say that another common thread I've seen throughout these time travel episodes is that it's generally Spock, but it's sometimes other characters characters describing the time period they're going back to as barbaric. And so Spock says this about the Great Depression. And honestly, I would say this about our time period now. I just think it's interesting to, like you said, Ashlyn, in a similar vein, interesting to see what historians or what Starfleet officers will say about our time (laughs) right now. I also love, on a little happier note, that Kirk, again, is like, oh, I've seen old photos of of this time period. I'm like, man, was that the same museum where you saw those those beautiful (laughs) records? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a little more accurate because at least myself, I'm really interested in the Depression and World War One and Two, and that the early 20th century history for me is really interesting and something that I think we can all learn from. So for me, I was like, okay, that makes more sense that Kirk is studying this time period. But totally. either way, it's funny. Yeah. I mean, we have a great grandma who grew up during the Depression era who's still alive, and she talks about how difficult it was because she had a huge family. And so just getting through each day and getting enough food on the table was really difficult. Well, and it was common that children were dying all the time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, no one had any money. Yeah, exactly. And you're right. This speaks to Edith Keeler's just overwhelming generosity and her acceptance of people because we see her also interact with other homeless people in the shelter and how kind she is. And when McCoy arrives and he's going through his episode because of the cortisine, that she just takes him in. She's not like, oh, you're crazy. Leave this place or whatever. She immediately gives him a cup of coffee. She even gives him, I think it's her room to stay in, or it's a room at least at the shelter to help him recuperate. And so I think you're right. Her kind nature is something that everyone is drawn to and especially Kirk is drawn to because of course we see Kirk fall in love every week pretty much in Star Trek and 
I think that sometimes it can frustrate me because I'm like, you've known this woman two days. How can you have fallen in love with her? But I think it's also Kirk's nature. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He loves deeply, passionately, and quickly. And this is something that I both admire and find frustrating about James D. Kirk. The depth in which he feels things can be really hard to manage sometimes. And we see Spock trying to manage it in this episode. Edith Keeler has to die, we find out, because McCoy ended up saving her from a traffic accident, which I love that even in his hysteric state, he's still adhering to the Hippocratic Oath. (laughs) And he's like, oh, this lady shall not be harmed. I'm going to save her, which is a very valiant and beautiful act of kindness, but which changes entirety of history. Oh, I love everything you said. I really felt that Kirk's connection was similar to his connection with Miramoni Mm -hmm. in the Paradise Syndrome. I thought it was interesting to have Spock in such close quarters with him while Kirk is going through and experiencing this relationship because generally when Kirk has a girlfriend he's hanging out with, he goes off separately and has his own storyline with her. But in this one, Spock is really trying to watch out for him because he's saying, hey, she has to die. You have to be okay. You have to be able to recover after this because this is a fact. She cannot survive this. And I think it's so important, not only to the mission, but it's essential to Kirk that Spock is there to help him through this. And McCoy at the end when he comes in. Yeah, Ashlyn, I'm glad you talked about this because something that is just devastating is the fact that Edith Keeler didn't do any horrible act. She wasn't Hitler's right-hand man. She wasn't this horrible woman. She was vying for peace. And that is what ended up delaying America's entrance into World War II, which granted was already pretty delayed. Already super delayed. (laughs) Because of her peaceful mission and because of her desperation to see a world of harmony, it allowed Germany to create the H-bomb first, which means that Germany ended up winning World War II and pretty much destroying what we know of Earth. Rihanna, I don't know if this is actually explained this specifically, but I kind of wonder if this is how the mirror universe has started because we know that Germany won and fascism won. And so I wonder if in the mirror universe... Edith Keeler survived. I mean, it might not have been Edith, but there's some factor that made Hitler win World War II. And then the mirror universe is all about fascism. Actually, I'm speechless. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. And I think that you just blew my I don't think you did just blow my mind. <laughs> like you're gonna have to pick up my brain from the floor because it just fell out. <laughs> oh my god. I've never thought of that. But I think that's a wonderful explanation. Yeah, I don't know, because there's just so many decisions and so many small choices that, like I talked about in the beginning of the episode, that ripple out into these giant changes. I'm not sure. I love the line that Spock says about Edith. He says she was a pacifist, but born in the wrong era. Kirk says something about, but her ideas were right. Like she was correct. And he was like, yes, but in the wrong time. And that is heartbreaking because I think about this a lot of different movements, like the civil rights movement, I think was at the right time and it needed to happen. It needs to continue to happen. I think it was too late. Well, okay. You're absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But I don't think people would have listened if it were earlier as much, you know? And so I think that this is the thing that Spock is trying to get at is that 
unfortunately, because of the barbaric attitudes that are low-key continuing today, peace is a harder thing to grasp and it's harder to achieve when people aren't prepared to listen. It's a horrible, horrible decision that they are forced into. And we see Kirk desperately grappling with this. We see that he is saving Edith Keeler when she almost falls down the stairs and breaks her neck. And Spock's like, oh my God, Captain, you could have just let her fall and this all would have been over quicker and we could go find McCoy. But Kirk says it wasn't her time yet. You know, he's desperate to have every second with her that he can because she's making this huge impact on not only him, but on everyone around her. Like we said, she is envisioning things of a world that Kirk knows will come to fruition. She has this beautiful perception of what humanity can be if we choose peace. And she has this beautiful long quote that Ashlyn posted on our social media. And I am just so inspired by her, by this character and her wonderful insight into humanity. Absolutely. And I think what makes this episode so compelling, like you talked about with Kirk saving her and McCoy saving her, is that everybody in this episode has to go against their nature Mm. in order to do the right thing. And it reminds me of the famous Dumbledore quote, sometimes you must choose between what is right and what is easy. Mm. And unfortunately, in our horrible history, the right choice was acting violently against another country and not sitting back and not choosing peace, which is just barbaric because that's the time that we're living in. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying we're living in because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's all barbaric now. Mm -hmm. Just seeing everybody do the opposite of their nature is really interesting. Poor Spock, he's really annoyed that he has to work with what he calls a zinc-plated vacuum tube culture. (laughs) (laughs) Knives and bearskins. In order to create this technology. And of course he does it because he's Spock and because he's amazing. I also love Edith's quote because she is so clairvoyant. And I understand why Kirk is so attracted to her. But I love the quote where Kirk asks her, well, where do you think we belong? And she points at Spock and she says, you at his side where you always have been and always will be. And I mean, that makes me think about it draws on the quote from Wrath of Khan when Spock sacrifices himself to save the Enterprise. You have been and shall always be my friend. Ah, Ashlyn, stop it. You're <laughs> making me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're setting this up like 20 years before that movie came out, and it's based on the lines that Edith says, just observing Kirk and Spock and their close relationship. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is not our Love and Affection series. This is time travel, but it's just essential to talk about these amazing women who shaped our favorite characters, and Edith Keeler is just a pillar. Absolutely. Do you remember what Edith says about Kirk, where he belongs? Oh, she says to Kirk, and you... You belong in another place. I don't know where or how, but I'll figure it out eventually. (laughs) So I think that's also what Edith likes about Kirk is that she can't read him and she can read everybody else really well. Yeah, absolutely. Ashlyn, I'm glad you talked about the amazing women characters that are created in Star Trek. And I think about how some women particularly can be these incredible focal points in history. I'm thinking Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm thinking Harriet Tubman. These incredible, strong people who make the right choices, even though they're hard every single day. 
I would like to, before we talk about her death, because it's going to get real sad, I really quickly want to talk about McCoy and his entrance into the past. Because for the first half of the time that he's there, really messed up from the courtesan, he is very paranoid. He's chasing- Killer! Yeah. <laughs> chasing this guy around. He drops his milk. Like it's just- <laughs> he- The guy vanishes himself with a phaser. Oh man, that was dark. Yeah. So this part of the episode has always struck me of McCoy's seemingly primal fear of ancient medicine. And this comes up often in the original series. I don't say often enough that it's like- a traceable pattern, but just enough where every time it comes up, I'm like, wow, McCoy is truly frightened of how medicine used to be. Even, I mean, of course, he's hyper paranoid. He's going through a lot. But when he's like, maybe I'll end up in a hospital and he just breaks down because he's thinking about how they're butchers, they're murderers, how they sew people up and suture them and, you know, like have their scalpels and their knives and everything. And I find this perspective of McCoy's very interesting because It's where medicine began. I mean, I thought as a doctor, he would have more respect for the history of medical pursuits and how medicine evolves. But I think that he is so accustomed to his own type of medicine and how non-invasive it is, how it's much easier to just give them a pill and they regrow a kidney. I think that he is unaccustomed and frightened of what doctors used to have to do, putting people in more pain to lessen their overall pain. And I don't know, I just find this relationship with it very interesting for McCoy and very telling of the kind of doctor that he is and his interactions with the past. I mean, we're going to talk about it in Voyage Home, but it's something that stuck out to me. I love that insight. I have never thought about it in that way. I did notice that he literally broke down crying when he said the word stitches. Yeah. <laughs> he literally breaks down. And I know he's essentially high mm-hmm. on this cortisine, so it's enhancing his emotions, but he really breaks down thinking about this. And yeah, what a great point because McCoy also is not someone who's an elitist about medicine. Mm-hmm. He doesn't go around boasting, I'm the greatest doctor who's ever lived. He's no Bashir. No, Um, (laughs) not at all. (laughs) He's just an old country doctor. Exactly. He's humble. He's good at what he does. And he's hardworking. And he's terrified of needles. Yeah. (laughs) The point that you brought up hits home even harder thinking about just McCoy's nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. I love his reaction when he finally meets Edith because he thinks it's all an illusion. He's like, either you're mad or I am (laughs) or (laughs) something's going on. I'm not at my best right now. Yeah. And he says, because I don't believe in you either. And then he finally, once he's getting better, he's like, at least now I believe in you. And again, this is Edith bringing out the best in people. She is so genuine and good and kind. And he's just like, okay, this world may be wrong and it may be a simulation, but you're real. And she's like, I'm flattered. Thanks. You know, it's a cute little interaction. But I think I would absolutely, regardless of if I had just injected myself with cortisine, I would also have the same reaction as McCoy of ending up in the 1930s. Like, oh, this isn't real. I must be having a psychotic break or a delusion or this is a simulation. (laughs) So I can't blame McCoy for that. (laughs) Seriously, I love that he also brings up the museum thing. He's looking at the cement and he's like, it's museum perfect accuracy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm convinced now that the museums in the 23rd century are ridiculous. Yeah. Are so advanced. They're probably incredible. (laughs) I mean, I would love to go see one. (laughs) Okay, so 
after McCoy is pretty much recovered, we see that Kirk is going on a date to take Edith out to the movies, and she's laughing because McCoy doesn't know about Clark Gable, and neither does Kirk. So that's a sign, obviously, that they're connected, yeah. which who, I mean, yeah, it's it's hilarious that you wouldn't know Clark Gable. Maybe now, because we're so far removed. I mean, I know like Clark in, Gable. I know, I do <laughs> so, too. Yeah, and, and we're young, yeah. so I don't know. But <laughs> there's no excuse not to know Clark Gable, essentially, is what she's saying. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she's very confused by this. But I love the moment where McCoy comes out onto the street with Kirk and Spock there, and they are yelling to see each other because they're like, Kirk, McCoy, Spock! Like, they're so happy, and you feel that joy because they've been searching for each other. And the whole episode, they've been teasing where McCoy will come into the shelter and Spock will be working in the back with the soup and not see him. Or they'll miss each other by seconds. Mm -hmm. So all of this teasing, teasing, until finally they're reunited. The trio of all time, the best trio, is reunited. And then, boom, that's the climax of the episode. That's where Edith gets hit by the car and Kirk holds McCoy back from saving her. And Kirk can't even look. He knows it's the right time. He told Spock earlier, it's not time. He knows that this is it. And they even do a good job with the filming. And she does such an amazing job. Joan Collins does such a fantastic... I mean, she's amazing in this whole episode. But I think she even goes into this trance when she's crossing the road that you know that she's about to get hit by the car. This is her destiny. Yeah. This is her moment to save the world. And it's so tragic that it has to be the end. Mm. And another line that always shakes me is when McCoy is saying, don't you know what you just did? I could have saved her. And Spock is like, he knows, doctor. He knows. Oh, absolutely devastating. Oh, my God. And when they come back through the Guardian, it's been seconds for Scotty and the others. And Scotty's like, hey, Captain, like, we did it. <laughs> the Enterprise is back. Like, he's so pumped. And <laughs> you were only gone for a second. Yeah. You know? And they yeah. have contact again. Everything's right in the world. But to see the devastation on all three of their faces is so telling. And Kirk says, let's get the hell out of here. He's like, I cannot spend a second more here. This is too painful. And it's just yeah. really the acting there is so perfect because they don't need to say much and Scotty even knows that something's going on or something horribly tragic happened down there because they all just look ashen faced. I just really admire their acting in this episode. Yeah, well, and Kirk doesn't say a word except for let's get the hell out of here. Like when they come out of the Guardian, Spock is just like it's done. Mm-hmm. He's not coming back with this cool story of hey, Scotty, I did this cool thing. Mm-hmm. No, he's just like it's done. Let's go. What a chilling ending to such a beautiful, beautiful episode. And we don't see anything about how the Enterprise leaves. I assume it's all safe and sound. Mm -hmm. They're not going through these crazy temporal waves. But what a just masterful piece of art we have in City on the Edge of Forever. Mm, Absolutely. So now we are going to transition (laughs) to a very fun, completely opposite everything except the time travel. We're still talking time travel. We are now on the episode Assignment Earth, which is another classic. I'm talking there's a cat, Spock's holding Mm -hmm. it. There's a guy climbing on top of this NASA shuttle almost. I mean, it's a United States warhead essentially, which is crazy. There's a lot going on in this episode. It's very James Bond. I'm a bigger fan of it. I used to not like it as a kid. I was like, this is boring. I've only seen it once before this rewatch. 
I remember being very disappointed because I was excited that there was a cat in it, but essentially everything went over my head. I was like, I don't care. What are they talking about bombs for? Who cares about missiles? What are, what are they talking about, essentially? But now coming at it from a perspective of being an older person, it gives me a whole new perspective on this episode. I'm excited to talk about this episode because I feel like I learned so much more about it this rewatch. I also have not rewatched it since our initial watch through like 10, 12 years ago. school, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is not one that I revisit. And I did not feel the same way as you did, Rihanna, mm -hmm. where I liked it better. I thought it was another middle of the road. Mm -hmm. My biggest complaint is that there's not enough Kirk and Spock in mm -hmm. it. Yeah. What does the Enterprise crew do except mess things up the whole time? <laughs> Literally. And- I did a little bit of research and this episode was actually supposed to be a backdoor pilot for a series called Assignment Earth Whoa. because Roddenberry created a show with this exact premise where it's kind of a James Bond-esque character and he has his cat and the agents and this computer in this flat with the secretary and they do big type of assignments <laughs> like this where they stop the missiles from going off and everything but the executives at Paramount did not like it and so Roddenberry thought he should do kind of a soft launch of it mm -hmm. and he incorporated that pilot into the Star Trek episode and so for me that makes a lot more sense because they are really fleshing out these side characters in a big way to the point where the guest star at the end of the episode is before the writing credit which that has not happened before in Star Trek just really interesting and also I'll just mention this now so when we're talking through the episode we know the significance of it Gene Roddenberry actually asked permission from NASA to use actual footage what? yes so the launch that we see take off that was a real launch I can't remember which launches it's from but I mean it's very easy to google but this is all real footage from NASA that he incorporates and edits to put in the show so this is not just anything random this is literally NASA and so I think it's another way like what they did with tomorrow's yesterday just to remind everybody hey nasa exists let's support the space program because it's really cool and i'm sure nasa was thrilled to be giving their footage to star trek which is the premier space show on television right now so wow ashlyn again hats off to our star trek resident historian here ashlyn thank you I really appreciate that insight because I did feel like this episode had a huge scope. The scale of it was a massive undertaking and I thought that the set pieces, the design, it wasn't the same set that we see on every other planet or it wasn't the same alleyway that they use every time they go back in time. It was very flushed out, very much like you're right, these characters were so deeply written that it felt like I was watching an episode of Discovery or of Deep Space nine where these side characters got so much love and attention that i was kind of curious i'm like where are our main cast here so thank you that makes so much sense and i would honestly like to watch that show i would watch assignment earth if it were a show <laughs> yeah i think i would have watched it too i mean it's a cool concept let's talk about the beginning of this episode and i really want to talk about I think his name is Mr. Seven. Yes. So they don't even show any kind of time travel at all when this episode starts. It's just, boom, here we are. We have performed the slingshot effect and we are here in 1968. That's literally all they yeah, say. Yeah, he said light speed breakaway factor, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, just make up some words there and we did it. We're back in time. Yeah. Kirk says in his captain's log that they are here for historical research 
into how humanity got through the year 1968. And I can only think of this as some Starfleet admirals are sitting around. Maybe they've had a couple drinks and they say, you know what's crazy? How did we even get out of all that crazy barbaric times? How did we even survive that? And then someone's like, call up Kirk. Have him go figure it out. I mean, this is so random. The most random. so random. Yeah. What? Historical research? I don't know. Who set this mission for them? Yeah, again, go to the wiki page. You don't have to go back in time to learn about it. (laughs) I actually did go to the wiki page because I was wondering why 1968 specifically. Mm -hmm. And they do mention it in the episode, but this is considered one of the bloodiest years in American politics. Wow. I mean- this is the year, and Spock even mentions it. He says at one point, there's supposed to be a big assassination today. That assassination was Martin Luther King Jr. Whoa. Was that assassination? There was tons and tons of political riots going on. It was the possibility that any country could be launching nuclear weapons at each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a dangerous time. The repercussions from the Vietnam War were all going on, everything with Nixon. I mean, what a nightmare. It sounds like 2021. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or 2020, for that matter. Or yeah. Ugh, so, yeah. I mean, this is a very fascinating year in history. And maybe I'm kind of starting to understand the admirals who gave Kirk this mission. <laughs> yeah. Again, wow. Thank you, historian Ashlyn. I am just glowing just with your knowledge. <laughs> like, I feel like you just leveled up. <laughs> I think that the way that they approached this episode was really clever because we do not know Gary Seven's intention in this episode. We do not know if he is malicious or if he's trying to save Earth. We don't know what alien sent him. When they describe it, he says he comes from a planet that is unknown, even in your future, he says. And Scotty's like, how can you hide a whole planet? <laughs> and I agree with Scotty. How in the world can you hide a whole planet? But I'm thinking it's kind of like Talos Four. Maybe there's illusions that hide it from sensors or maybe, you know, there's so many possibilities, but I really, f- I said sensors, yeah. <laughs> yeah Rihanna, I'm laughing because Rihanna said sensors. And <laughs> ever since that Lower Deck episode, I can't stop hearing. That's how you say it. Sensors. <laughs> oh, thanks for the call out. Wow. <laughs> it's all the Spock I've been watching. He just he gets in my brain. The sensors. Yeah. <laughs> so I do find it interesting that they are grappling with the question of is this agent going to be helping Earth or going to be harming it? And honestly, I understand their trepidation. They have encountered quite a few species who would like to destroy Earth or to change history to make it worse. Or, you know, there's all of these ways that they have seen malevolent beings attempt to harm them. And so I think that it's essential that they're questioning him. The part of me who is trusting is like, nah, he seems like a cool dude. Like he's got a cat. He knows what he's doing. He's talking to the computer. They're having like sassy back and forth. It's hilarious. I'm like, just trust him. He seems like he's got it all under control. But also, the logical side of me is like, no, we must investigate this and be sure that he is not trying to destroy the history. When this woman comes in, and her name is Roberta, when Roberta comes in to work, and she has this whole section of dialogue with 
Agent Seven, Mr. Seven or whatever. And I don't know whether to trust him either. He's got this typewriter who's like typing out everything she says. He's got this crazy cool technology, but it's also, we don't know if he's trying to arm the nuclear warhead for war or if he's trying to prevent war until pretty much the last three minutes of the episode. That is how much suspense they build throughout it. And I think that it's fairly well done. Keeps us on our toes, keeps us guessing. I feel like I appreciate the parts of the side characters more because they make more sense than the comedy of errors that the Enterprise is going through. It's a mess. Again, Scotty is beaming them onto the middle of this is practically Cape Canaveral. I guess it's not really. They say it's something else. I was just going to say that too. They say it's, I don't know, like the rocket space center, but it's supposed to be the Kennedy Center. Yeah. I don't know why they didn't just say that because I guess it also looks like they're in New York somehow. I'm like, what is going on? Who knows the real location of this on Earth? But anyway, yeah, I mean, Scotty (laughs) is beaming them randomly. They managed to get themselves arrested and they're there helplessly watching this launch happen. Kirk says he's felt the quote, the most helpless he's ever felt in his life. God, he looked the most helpless. <laughs> like, Kirk, he just reaches his hand towards his communicator, and the guy, the, his guard turns around and is like, stay back. Yeah. Seriously, Spock didn't Vulcan pinch all of them. They do nothing when they're captured. Kirk didn't even throw That's, his body yeah. at anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was shocked by. I'm like, where are the Kirk chops? Let's see them. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I also want to go back to Mr. Seven a little bit because, Rihanna, my line of thinking was exactly like yours with the hidden planet close to Earth. Mm -hmm. I was thinking Talus 4 as well. And what about Talus 5, 6, 7, 8? I mean, hey, maybe that's one of the planets. (laughs) Specifically, Mr. Seven explains, I think, to his computer, because the computer's like, identify yourself or (laughs) whatever. I know I just sounded like the computer's on Vulcans. (laughs) How do you? Um, How do you feel? (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Seven explains to us and to the computer that him and the other agents, I believe they're number two and three or something like that they were taken from earth a couple centuries ago their human line was taken from earth and they were trained specially on this planet to be the guardians of earth to prevent crazy things from happening on earth so they could basically follow the right path this is nuts this is a huge huge deal And Mr. Seven is one of those humans. And McCoy does a full examination on him because Kirk is trying to figure out, do we trust him? Is he human? Is he an alien? What's going on? And McCoy says that his body is perfect. And Mr. Seven's explanation is that his body has been perfectly trained to save Earth, basically. He's been... I imagine put in a school his whole life and has been physically training and so have all of his ancestors basically just to be the guardians of earth. So I don't know what we did to deserve this race for looking out for us, but thank you. And I am saying I would love to see this addressed in the future. Yes. Future episodes of Star Trek, Discovery, whatever, even Lower Decks. I would love to see this referenced ever again because 
I feel like it's a gold mine of really cool things to discover. So I'm just putting it out there. I don't know what's going on with Mr. Seven and the race of people who trained him to do this. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was just shaken by that. Yeah, I mean, we never got any explanation of where the other agents disappeared to. And so... No, they, no, no, we did. They died. Oh, they died in a car accident. Oh, that's right. And he said, oh, to die in such a banal way or something. like. Yeah, so sad. Again, you're raised your whole life to do this one thing and you're dead in such a simple way that's tragic and so what sympathy that really builds sympathy for Mr. Seven and his predicament it totally does and I find that his dedication is very admirable I mean he is climbing aboard this rocket with his cat also I am obsessed with this cat unfortunately her name is Isis so that didn't age well (laughs) (laughs) but she's incredible I love that Spock is strangely drawn to her I love that they have this communication turns out she's a woman I feel like maybe there was a familiar sort of vibe like they were master and familiar or maybe she's a part of the race that helped train him I'm not sure but see again I would like to know more I just think that Gene Runberry has such a brilliant mind and I think that this would have been a really brilliant series had he had the time to flush it out and more like had any money been given to him yeah so yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> he had ample yeah. time. He just didn't get the funds he needed. But yeah, I'm just curious about all of this. But I do think that it makes for an intriguing episode, but which is sadly enough that is left unsaid. And I'm very split on this episode, but I do think that it's a fun look into more of the space section of our past and an interesting look into 1968. I'm really glad you mentioned about it being just a horrible year. And yeah, I love his interactions with the cat. One of my favorite lines is when he goes, meow, you're nervous, aren't you, doll? What a weird thing to say, but also like, yeah, I'd be nervous if I were climbing on top of this thing, trying to arm the warhead so that you can manually fly it, so you can detonate it, so that it stops all of these other, like he literally (laughs) said he wants to frighten them out of the arms race. So, wow, what a task has been put on this man. And he succeeds only because Kirk finally decides to trust him and because Spock can't do it. This is the first time that Spock is incapable of fixing the problem and saving the day and so it has to go to the man who is capable and who has been training for this and i'm really glad they ended up trusting him i think that kirk used his great starfleet instincts his great captain instincts i mean he definitely took a risk it could have ended all it could have been really horrible but he chose to trust him and it was the right choice yeah and i also just want to point out that i do understand i mean i've criticized kirk in this episode but i understand why he's on such unequal footing because even in his own time kirk and the enterprise are the best of the best i mean the enterprise is the best ship in the fleet kirk is the best captain he's got the best crew no matter who he interacts with he's kind of on a plane above Mm -hmm. them because he's smart and he has the technology and so when he's traveling back in time to do this historical observation basically he is not expecting to encounter a being that is more powerful than him and who has more technology than him this is what happens when they first meet him is that mr seven is beaming from earth to this mysterious planet what we don't even have this technology until past voyager yeah, into, into discovery like season yeah, three discovery. discovery yeah yeah where you can beam from planet to planet what what only what? borg technology can do that yeah i mean this is nuts this is really insane and so to encounter that type of technology when you're in your own past is 
super shocking. And I totally understand why you would be insanely suspicious of this person. Because if you have this technology, yeah, what's your motive behind it? (laughs) What's your plan? I thought that was a really cool wrench to throw into this episode. And that's why it does make it really memorable. Because anyone who has a step above Kirk is a big deal. And exactly like you said, the fact that Spock can't save the day is shocking. And maybe that's why I don't like this episode. (laughs) I mean, I, I do like it. But I'm like annoyed. I'm like, dang it. Why doesn't Spock just save the day like he literally does every episode? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And I did find another parallel. We see this with Edith Keeler. We see this with Roberta in this episode. And a little bit in what we're going to speak of in Voyage Home with Jillian Taylor, Roberta says at one point, we wonder if we're going to be alive when we're 30. That's how she talks about how horrible the times are. And I often wonder that for these times now. And Edith Keeler was wondering that. Jillian Taylor was wondering that for the whales. You know, I mean, there's these things about how Earth just needs to accelerate into a brighter future. And I'm just, again, reminding you all to stick together and be good people. And I got vaccinated yesterday. So like, get vaccinated. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's my shameless plug. But yeah, I just thought that that's an interesting thing that gets woven into these time travel episodes is the fact that these characters are desperately wishing for a better future. And Star Trek and the Enterprise crew continues to provide that. Rihanna, mm, thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you. Man, I hope oh, I hope we have a good future. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I want to. I'm that lady in the in the episodes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Let's totally shift gears to something totally different. And I just want to say, God bless the original series. I just had a blast watching these episodes. So much fun. And I had a very different type of blast watching the second animated series episode yesteryear the best one in my opinion yeah i mean it's the only one that matters (laughs) (laughs) but i know we talked a lot about yesteryear in our family series because there's a lot of family dynamics to explore Mm -hmm. with this fox sarek amanda family but we're not going to talk about any of that this is time travel remember guys this is a time travel episode (laughs) so i want to talk about yesteryear and there's a couple differences (laughs) Because since we just talked about City on the Edge of Forever, we saw The Guardian. Here we are with The Guardian again. They have come back to the planet. And like you mentioned, Kirk has been hanging out on Orion. And that's how the episode starts is he says, oh, how fascinating it was to see Orion at the dawn of its civilization. So that's cute. Kirk is like nerding out over this, which sounds great. It sounds like it went really Mm -hmm. well. Kirk also says that the Guardian is the focus of all the time streams in the galaxy. So that made me confused because I thought it was the universe or I don't know. I just feel like that was a weird sentence. But also, <laughs> this is the animated series. So when they come out of this, no one knows who Spock is because something that they did on Orion had resulted in Spock's death as a child on Vulcan. Yeah, so they were like, what? How do we mess this up? We were so careful. But like, seriously, seriously, how did they mess this up? How did the dawn of Orion have any relevance on Vulcan? I don't know. But I guess it's all about those ripples, you know, that have effects that we can't predict. Well, they end up telling us that the fact that Spock wasn't there to save his younger self's life because he was with Kirk on Orion. He couldn't be in two places at once, and so he couldn't save his past self. But then there's the question of 
why was he there to know to save himself in the first place? When would he have done this or known to do this before he went to Orion? But I guess because this is time and it's ever occurring that it's happening because he went back and did it, but only because he didn't do it the first time. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's examples of this where the timeline is reliant upon somebody going back and saving Mm -hmm. someone else and that's the only way you exist and then you're caught in this paradox. I kind of like to think of it like a loop. So if you think about time as a a string that's going forward and then you're like on a roller coaster. So you do one loop-de-loop, you go back in time to save yourself and then you continue on. Yeah, it's the dot and the Jeremy Baramy of the eye in the good place. (laughs) Yes, thank you for that good place. Yes, exactly. And so I can't remember. There is another show I'm sure that relies on this that I can't think of right now. Mm -hmm. My guess is that Maybe when our prime Spock was a baby on Vulcan, or you know, a cute little kid, cute little <laughs> and himself from the future as Selick came back to save him, he must have been with Kirk. And instead of going on Orion, maybe they were investigating the dawn of Vulcan society or or something. I don't know. Or maybe there was something else in that timeline that caused. Spock to know that he was going to die as a kid. I don't know. Right. It's not explained at all. Yeah. But it's a lot to unpack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wondered too about the mechanics of this because Kirk remembers Spock, but no one else does. And that's only because Kirk was with Spock when they were at the Dawn of Time and Orion. So Kirk was still in this bubble with Spock. But I was wondering because there's some shows or movies, I think it's actually Star Trek. Maybe I'm going crazy, but where they have Spock. Like, oh, we're only in the eye of the storm and we'll disappear soon because our past self died. What's that? That is Star Star Trek. Trek. That's Star Trek. (laughs) Thank you. Next gen logic. Yes. And so I was wondering if they were going to pull that. Wouldn't future Spock be either disintegrating or dying? But I guess not because he will be going back to save himself, but just he has to go do it. And so because it is in this loop, he's not going to just disappear or cease to exist. It's just people don't know him because he hasn't done it yet, but he's always doing it. It's very confusing. I like that, though. I really like that because otherwise, it's like Back to the Future. Spock should not be able to come out of the Guardian. (laughs) He should just disappear. Mm -hmm. I really like that answer, that it's the eye of the storm. And like we talked about, the Guardian is a really unique situation where maybe around the planet is just dead space and there's nothing there. But I thought it was really funny because we talked about how the Guardian was on factory settings where the time can only go at a certain speed. And this time, Spock is like, Guardian, show me Vulcan era 3066. 2257 or something. Yeah, exactly. And then the Guardian's like, go for it. (laughs) Guardian had a glow up. He had an upgrade where now he can just give you an exact point in time and be like, yeah, boy, jump in. (laughs) Who knows? I mean- I can only think that maybe the Federation has been using the Guardian, like what Kirk is doing with the Orions. Maybe there's frequently people coming in and out. And so he's like, you know, people are really messing up time when I'm doing it this way. (laughs) I mean, they had historians there with them to record time, which is super cool. And I love that part. So maybe the historians have done some upgrades on the Guardian and now it can go specifically to any point. I hope so. I find all of the mechanics very interesting in this and the fact that 
Spock's memory, understandably, is a little hazy going into this. He was like, I was only seven. I remember Selleck coming to save me, and I remember that it was during the Kazwan trial, but he forgot that he had ran away as a kid in order to try to see if he was worthy of taking the Kazwan a month later because Sarek was putting a lot of pressure on him to do it right the first time. I find it kind of cool, and it does sort of make sense that as you're then reliving your past, but you're like your older self watching your younger self relive the past it starts to come back to you and he's like how could i have forgotten that i ran away and so he goes and chases after spock and aichaya his pet shaylat but anyway i just think that that is really cool concept and something that they did really well of spock regaining his memories as they're happening sort of in the present in his presence it's such a well-done episode in that factor especially I group my memories in a similar way. And so I really sympathize with Spock, where if I'm trying to recall something in the past, it's like, okay, this is my memories, comma, cause one. <laughs> These are my memories, comma, my 16th birthday. You know? <laughs> totally. And so you might not have a memory of day to day of what happens, but you know, in the general time period, you're like, yeah, that was around when my mom sold her house or whatever. Yeah. It's very realistic how Spock goes through that memory process of discovering his old self. I love when Spock realizes this. He has a great moment where he does a face palm mm -hmm. and he says, I seem to have lost track of time. <laughs> I also want to give a quick shout out to the Enterprise wardrobe department. I think that they deserve a little love because literally Spock was like, send down some Vulcan robes circa 2257 and send down some vintage boots, you know, all the stuff that he needed. And immediately they beamed it down. And Kirk had even a thing of like, wow, like they're efficient <laughs> or something. <laughs> Kirk even says in reply to Spock's really specific order, he says, I'll have that to you right away, Spock. And I'm thinking, does Kirk even remember what he just said? Did you write down what Spock right? said? You know? <laughs> How are you getting those traditional Vulcan clothes? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, so great. Yeah. I thought the replicators were really on point. Yeah, they're doing a lot in these time travel episodes. <laughs> yeah. I also want to revisit briefly something that I brought up in the family episode when we talked about yesteryear. And again, it's my theory, my fan theory about this, because there are a couple moments in this episode that are different than Spock's memory, not because he doesn't remember them like we just talked about, but because things fundamentally changed. For example, Aichaya dying in Spock's past. Aichaya did not die mm -hmm. while Spock ran away. That did not happen. Also, Spock's interactions with Sarek did not happen. Adult Spock's interactions with Sarek. Well, they might have, but and young Spock wouldn't have known about them. That's my only pushback. Ah, that's true. That's very true. But yes, you're right. I mean, point. we still, I find those interactions to be very curious. And so I am wondering, this goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning of the episode and something that the animated series does not have time to talk about in this 20 minute format. So do these changes that happen in adult Spock's past create a new timeline for Prime Spock or does it create a parallel universe hmm. for Spock Prime? And is now baby Spock a part of this alternate timeline? We don't know. Yeah. But I am wondering if it's in the same time period as the Kelvinverse. Mm. The biggest issue with it is that why would the Guardian send Spock back to the Kelvinverse? Like to right. a, a universe that wasn't even his. But maybe that's all something to do with Spock would have died in the Kelvin timeline had not Selick come and saved him. And 
I don't know. I don't know. It's just interesting that when old Spock comes to the Kelvin timeline, maybe he's meeting his young self again. Well, it's a big question because the episode does not reconcile how these changes in Spock's past come out in the future. We talked about Sarek is very nice in the Kelvin verse. Sarek is just doing much better. And I feel like it has a lot to do with what Spock said to him in yesteryear. I don't know. A lot of these are just random thoughts, but I'm just trying to reconcile all of this. I love every single one of your random thoughts. And I completely agree that this is a puzzle that I've been trying to piece together as well, because why did Aichaya die? Because when Amanda told old Spock that young Spock is doing the cause one trial in a month. I think that that his confusion halted him and stopped him from maybe leaving 10 minutes earlier. And it might've been a difference of saving Aichaya's life. That is my guess. Maybe Selick, when he went through the first time, maybe Amanda didn't tell Selick that because he wasn't particularly asking it because it was happening for the first time. But then if time's a loop, wasn't it always happening? So it's all of these really difficult questions that of course, like you said, will never be answered because because it's the animated series and they don't need to tie up those loopholes, but something that's really fun to investigate in this series. I also really believe that I Chaya's death because young Spock ran away changes who Spock is as a character. This now is like his biography moment. Like when Spock's writing his autobiography, <laughs> he's like, this moment changed yeah. me. But adult Spock yeah. did not experience Aichaya dying as a direct result of him running away. And saving his life. Aichaya saved and him. Yes, Aichaya laid down his life for yeah. him. Absolutely. And for me, if I'm young Spock and I'm getting severely bullied at school and I'm having all these questions about am I Vulcan? Am I human? What is my path? What are my expectations from my parents? How do I reconcile all of this? The thing that I would learn from these events is that I cannot make reckless decisions because it will affect the people around mm -hmm. me. And it could have devastating consequences if I do not think it through. I can't just be running into the desert in the middle of the night, you yeah. know? And I think that Spock Prime would have learned that lesson because his cousin saved him. It has a different impact when your beloved pet dies for you. So Anyway, I know I'm stuck on this, but I think it's a big deal. <laughs> yes, I have one more Aichaya thought is that I think too, you're absolutely right. And especially because young Spock takes the journey back through the desert to go and get the healer, brings him back yes. just to yes. have the healer tell him that he is yes. unable to save Aichaya and then giving young seven-year-old Spock the choice to either euthanize Aichaya or have him live but suffer. And Ashlyn and I, we lost our cat Thunder a few years ago and had to make a similar choice. And we were in college and it was still one of the hardest choices I've ever made in my life. And to I choose to not have her continue to suffer and to put her down. He was seven and he had to make that choice on his own, but he made the most mature emotionally and mentally mature choice to end Aichaya's suffering. He said to honor his sacrifice to end his suffering. So just applause to seven-year-old Spock. Yeah, he did some really serious growth in this animated episode of 20 yeah. Minutes. <laughs> and that's why, again, I just bring up. So at the end of the episode, everything succeeded. Spock tells Sarek, I shall not be returning. Yeah. <laughs> and the Guardian pulls him back into the present. Is that Spock different than the Spock that went into the Guardian? Or is little baby Spock growing up a fundamentally different 
person who had to mature a couple years before he normally would have. Yeah, important questions. And I think that too, when Spock says there was only a minor change, a pet died. And Kirk's like, Meh. he's kind of insensitive because obviously he doesn't understand the grief that Spock just went through. He's like, oh, well, a pet in the scheme of things is no big deal. But Spock says a death of a pet might mean something to someone. Mm. Which is like a little vague, but you know he's talking about baby Spock and himself. I mean, both himself. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay. This is our grand finale. We are entering the movies. Here we are. We are going to be talking about The Voyage Home, which is the fourth movie in the Star Trek franchise. And one of my favorites. Yes, it is my comfort movie. I love this movie. Ashlyn and I both went to school in San Francisco, so this is quite a callback to the different locations. Wow, I'm so thrilled that we get to talk about this movie because it is the ultimate time travel movie. I think it's one of the best ones. Again, we have some very interesting science that goes with this time travel theory. It's a slingshot around the sun, so at least we've seen it in the original series. They even mention We've done this before, so they're kind of like, we're experts, even though Spock is still recovering from his death experience. Not near death, I say death experience. Yeah, and his patra being put back into his brain. This is what we see when the movie starts is Spock is retraining his brain again. He's answering all these math questions and science questions and... How do you feel? How do you feel? The whole reason they're going back is the whales. George and Gracie, the legends, the myths, the humpback whales that no longer exist in their time period because they were hunted to extinction. This is another call to all of you out there to not hunt animals to extinction because then probes will come and try to destroy the earth looking for whales. This is the future we have in store if we kill humpback whales. Mostly our listener base is whale hunters. So <laughs> so this is for you guys. I, Listen up. I thought this is a perfect platform for us to announce. <laughs> Please stop killing whales. <laughs> I mean, half of this movie is a PSA against whaling, so don't do it, friends. (laughs) I love the scene where they decide to go back in time Mm -hmm. because they're synthesizing the sound that the probe is playing, Mm -hmm. and Kirk is like, what would that sound like underwater? And her is like, oh, let me put it through some filters, and (laughs) it sounds, of course, like whale song. And so what Kirk comes up with, As the answer is, oh, well, we have to go back in time and get some whales, (laughs) rather than Ahura or anyone at Starfleet who studies xenolinguistics. How about you create the language of whales and reply to the probe and just say, hey, we're good. The whales are fine. Leave Earth alone. Ashlyn, I never thought of that. I was like, Kirk, I was like, the only option is to go grab some (laughs) whales. Or what about, okay, don't they have DNA things? They could also create a whale probably in this century. I don't know. Maybe not. But I like your answer a lot better. That would be easy. But also then this movie wouldn't exist. So I don't know. I feel like if they have DNA synthesizers, you're risking like a Jurassic Park. (laughs) Um, Killer whales are back to humanity (laughs) to extinction. Yeah, that sounds right. They're back and they want revenge. Yeah, Star Trek 14. Let's see it. I think that one's called The Wrath of Whales. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh my God. I can't believe they didn't think of that. Uhura should have just made some whale sounds and then been like, probe, you're good. We're here. 
it's unfortunate because they've done so much time travel in the past. Kirk's like, well, let's do what we're good at. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> we've succeeded before. Might as well just full send it. And I honestly think he's like, I don't want to get slapped on the wrist by all these Starfleet laws that we broke. Let's go back in time. And if we fail, well, whatever. At least we tried to save humanity. Yeah, this is the other thing is the main crew of the Enterprise is on this Klingon bird of prey mm -hmm. that they stole from the previous movie. And they are awaiting disciplinary action by Starfleet Command. And Kirk is notorious for getting in trouble and getting out mm -hmm. of it. So I don't know why he's so desperate to escape that he goes back in time. <laughs> but he might also be thinking, hey, if I save the world again after just saving the world two times in a row maybe they'll let us maybe off the charges will be dropped yes as if they weren't going to be dropped already i mean in the beginning of the movie it's kind of a false sense of stakes because there's this klingon who's calling for kirk's head and saying he messed up my crew and he's the worst then the judge in the trial says well we're gonna let him yeah. off so <laughs> why are you yelling about kirk literally <laughs> Why say this at the beginning of the movie? But I mean, the I stakes digress. are the fact that this probe is going to destroy Earth, I guess, and not the fact that they're breaking some laws. But yeah, I agree. It's sort of like, why did they bring that part in the beginning? <laughs> but yeah, Don't so know. we have a very interesting beginning to this. And then the most trippy time travel sequence I have ever seen in my life. I don't know what I mean, drugs they were on when they decided to make this scene where these heads are morphing into each other and they're like coming out of this mist and it's horrifying absolutely i felt like mccoy had injected me with cortisone <laughs> when i watched this scene yes before the cloud sequence even starts i was really interested to see how fast they were going because sulu is calling out their speed as they're accelerating and he's like 9.2 9.3 and they eventually get up to 9.8 and i think maybe 9.9 .9, but that's when the sound gets really mm -hmm. loud and that's when the time travel really uh -huh. begins and so i'm wondering if they go warp 10 because we know from next generation anytime they go warp 10 some crazy Stuff Nothing happens, good ever happens after Warp good. 10. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so I'm wondering if they actually hit 10 or if they were just on the brink of 9.9 .9 and that's what you need for time travel. Yeah. So then we just have to break down every aspect of this scene yeah. because I'm hearing quotes like so the heads are appearing in the clouds and there are quotes from just five minutes ago in the movie. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. where Sulu's saying like, oh, Captain, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> quotes that aren't even like relevant spock is saying i do not know captain yeah random quotes okay is this happening in their minds is this what you see when you travel back in time so i'm wondering this too because kirk's sort of like laying back in his chair he's got his eyes closed i think that maybe this is kirk's imagination but i'm also wondering if they're all just having a shared hallucination or if this is like how they are like morphing back in time if this is really i don't know i really don't know what their intention I was for this I was wondering that too. That's what I was sort of hoping was the shared hallucination. Yeah. <laughs> because then at the end, the whales appear. Yeah. Okay, that was weird. <laughs> Were they just like cementing their goal? You know, they're like, okay, it's about the whales. <laughs> Don't forget about the whales. <laughs> And then the, the body of the man falls to oh, earth. Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who knows what's going Don't on? Like Who knows what's Don't happening? like that. I thought no. it was foreshadowing, but it's just not. Or if it is, it's not very good. <laughs> so. And there's flames. I don't know. Yeah. They wake up and here they are at the latter half of the 21st century. <laughs> San Francisco. I was born there. <laughs> 
Yeah. yeah. So I love too that they call it time warp. They call it time warp quite a lot in the episodes and in this. And I'm just thinking of like them doing the time warp. I would like to see them do yes. it. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering what year that movie came out and if they were just trying to reference right, it. Yeah. So I think that it's also cool that Spock programmed the variables from memory. Again, amazing because he doesn't really have much of a memory, but he still did it because he's <laughs> awesome. I also think about how stupid they are <laughs> in the beginning of this episode because they are intentionally going back in time. This is not being thrown like some of the episodes. They did not think to cloak before before they entered the atmosphere. Why? Why why do you think that they forgot? Did they did they forget that they are in a Klingon bird of prey that they have this amazing cloaking technology? What's going on? I think that they forgot that they've already been to Earth two other times <laughs> without cloaks <laughs> and they thought it worked out then too. So, hey, at least this one has a cloak. Like at least they cloaked once they landed in Golden okay, Gate Park. Fair. You know, like, yeah. you know, I think we have to take our uh, our opportunities when they yeah. come. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I'm, I'm being a little too critical here. At least they cloaked <laughs> and they didn't just fly into Golden Gate Park and land. Um, they still, though, when they landed, did not check if any trash men were around before they just climbed out of the bird of prey. And I love that the two trash guys are like, we are never speaking of this. This did not happen. And they get the hell out of there. They're like, "Uh uh-uh, we are repressing this fully. And I just think it's hilarious because, like, I went to University of San Francisco, so I was right by Golden Gate Park. So I've run past that area so many times and wondered to myself, is there a cloaked Klingon bird of prey there? I mean, who knows? It could be there. (laughs) Well, and what's funny is that Golden Gate Park is frequently filled with people hanging out on the grass. And so during the day through this whole movie, no one was chilling. It must have been. Come on. You know that we're out there enjoying the sunshine and other uh activities shall i say yeah they're getting lit on that yeah. one <laughs> come yeah. on guys yeah so then we come up with another problem scotty says that the dilithium crystals that are supposed to help them get back are depleted and i love that is it kirk who's like can you recrystallize them like he doesn't know anything i mean this reminds me that kirk is not like janeway who is also like an engineer and who who could be down there in the bowels of the ship saving everything that is not kirk he is like let's recrystallize dilithium and scotty's like we can't even do that in our century (laughs) i don't think they can even do that in discoveries season three no like that is not no no one can do do that. that Why would you think he could do that? Scotty's amazing, but he's not that good. <laughs> so they realize that they have to find, they have to take out the protons of the nuclear power. And we're in a nuclear era once again. Thank God it's a Cold War, you know? What would they have done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank God that uh, they're right by Alameda's naval base that happens to have a nuclear power plant there. So that is one of their many missions. They're like, okay, let's get some whales, let's get some protons, and we'll just head out. <laughs> essentially their mission. <laughs> I also want to point out a quote that McCoy says when they're flying into the bay, he's like, wow, it doesn't look that much different from our century. And so I know this is 200 years in the past for mm-hmm. them. Almost exactly, actually, which I thought was funny. It's like it's there in 1986 and the movie takes place. I was looking this up. 2286. Mm. Wow. So it's exactly 200 years. This um, movie came out in 86, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. And that's they just went right. Into yeah, it. I think that's on really quick. That's another thing that they keep doing. Like in the original series, they kept going back to the 60s and now they're going to the 80s. They really wanted to reflect the time that people were watching it to have it be relatable and feel really fun to see their culture reflected in a time travel movie 
do you know how cheap it is to film on location? Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's what Leonard no Nimoy thought. Sets there. When he directed this movie, he's like, we're, we're going to make this one yeah, cheap. Yeah, totally. But, and it's going to make a lot of money because it's mm-hmm. great. Anyway, um, I, I thought it was interesting because San Francisco is such a historical city. I mean, I know today we have historical landmarks where we have to keep buildings preserved. I'm wondering, since McCoy makes this comment that it looks so similar after 200 years, which is not true of like, I mean- Maybe some places in Europe look similar that they did 200 years ago, but that's really hard to imagine. So I'm wondering if the city of San Francisco in the future, maybe we start laying down laws that say we have to preserve this as it was originally built. But also having lived in cities a lot, there's constant construction. I mean, we heard construction earlier in (laughs) Chicago where Rihanna's recording right now. There's constantly changes going on to improve it, to make it more aesthetically pleasing. So it seems like that'd be hard to uphold. Yeah, because Salesforce was literally being built while we were in college. So what, like they... What? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I just uh, if yeah. any city were to preserve landmarks, it would be San Francisco. So I absolutely believe that that could be canon <laughs> for sure. Yeah, there's uh, so many historical landmarks. Yeah, but. and I also love that Kirk is like, okay, everyone, we're terra incognita here, and then immediately proceed to not do any of that. <laughs> immediately, the least terra incognita, because this is how the original Enterprise crew runs things when they're back in time they're like it always worked out before if we mess up a little eh, it's fine if we like if we just happen to tell random whale biologists the truth about and then let them come aboard the ship it'll be fine what What? i mean yeah i wanted to say too that it's hilarious this time they called the 80s a primitive and paranoid culture so it wasn't barbaric but we're still primitive and paranoid in the 80s so just so you know where we're at (laughs) okay I mean, I would agree with mm-hmm. that, not having lived through the 80s, but from what I yeah. hear, that's mm-hmm. yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> there are just a couple of callbacks. I want to say that for our own time is funny because this movie has aged well in a lot of ways, but a lot of the references have not aged well. Like Yellow Pages, I don't know if a lot of younger listeners even know what the Yellow Pages mm-hmm. are, but it's a giant phone book where you could find the address of everyone and every business that you were looking for. I mean, it was like the OG Google, mm-hmm. but it was this huge, giant book. Anyway, I'm probably making a lot of listeners feel old, <laughs> but our, our dad used to deliver phone yeah. books. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, anyway... Yes. Yeah. So I thought that was great. I also think that we kind of lose the humor of Chekhov, who's a Russian, asking people in the city where the nuclear vessel, the nuclear vessels are. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's the height of the Cold War and a Russian is in America asking for, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's hilarious and how shocking that would have been. And the fact that the police officer didn't arrest him (laughs) is kind of shocking too. (laughs) Good job, buddy. I, I do love too this little Easter egg fact that during that scene when they're asking about the nuclear vessels in Alameda, they did not get extras for this scene. These are random real people on the street just in San Francisco. It's actually right by City Lights where I used to intern. That area is right down by the pyramid. It's just hilarious because there's this one woman who's like, oh, well, I think it's uh, across the bay in Alameda. And he's like, that's what I said, Alameda. (laughs) And so I just think that's super clever. 
I remember reading that as well. And I wish maybe this should have been my answer. If I could time travel in the past, I would go back to 86 and I would talk to Chekhov. Yes, I'd be like, don't. <laughs> and that's like, make sure that you know you can beam out, that you can't beam out because of the radiation. <laughs> that's what I would tell him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, seriously. When Kirk and Spock are going on the bus to go meet George and Gracie, there is the iconic scene of the punk rocker playing his music really mm -hmm. loud. This is a very normal thing in oh, San Francisco. I mean, people don't have they don't have boom boxes anymore, but like, you know, it's just your phone on full mm -hmm. blast. And Spock nerve pinches him. It's hilarious. Mm -hmm. And then they have this, this discussion about the colorful, colorful, yeah, colorful metaphors in the early or in the twentieth century mm -hmm. or in the in the twenty first century. And Rihanna, I wanted to ask you because Kirk says you can see it in all the collected works of the time. And Spock says, like, what? <laughs> and so do you know what Kirk is talking about in this scene? Is this real? Or is he just like making up some random things to be impressive to Spock? I honestly thought he was talking about people like Ginsburg, people like beat poets, pe but that was more 50s. That wasn't 80s. So, but I'm wondering because we're in the San Francisco scene, if he is talking about Kerouac, a lot of those people decided to just use colorful metaphors. They used a lot of language in their writing and got their books and poetry collections banned from so many places. Allen Ginsberg got put on trial for his poetry book, Howl. And so, I mean, it, also because it had like homosexual themes and all of this other stuff. But I, I'm wondering if it's the sort of San Francisco flavor that he's trying to think of or if he's I don't know. But I also thought that was really interesting that Kirk says, nobody pays attention unless you swear every other word, which is that true of the 80s? I don't know, maybe. But I just think that's hilarious that that is what Kirk's thought of was the defining feature of the 80s was that you have to swear every other word. And that Spock takes that to heart. Spock is swearing up and down this movie. And it's one of my very favorite things. He really takes that on. He's like, okay, challenge accepted. I will swear every other word because I want to blend in. In a couple minutes, he's going to say to Jillian, those are not the hell in the whales. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love everything about this. I mean, when they get to the aquarium, we see... <laughs> I love that they're showing also the whaling at the aquarium. Dark. Yeah. <laughs> it's really dark. My, my mother-in-law actually came into the room while I was watching this scene and she loves this movie. And she looked at the screen and she said, oh, I forgot how horrible this part is. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you probably came in at the worst part to see because they really show you the guts of those whales. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Jeez. It's very, very violent. They really want to throw out how awful it is. Oh my gosh. I also... I think that the the whale section in the aquarium hilarious. I love to see them on the tour, getting to meet Jillian and then Spock swimming with them. All of that's fantastic. And I also, again, love to see them interacting with the things around them. I'll go back a little to when Kirk sells his glasses and the guy says $100 and Kirk's like, is that a lot? Because if you think about it, how would you know? Like they don't have money. It's like when Jake Sisko says, he's like, I'm human. I don't have any money. <laughs> like we don't know. <laughs> they wouldn't know how much that is they can't get exact change on the bus so like they're clearly very out of their depth in a lot of these sort of minutiae of the time period and I find that to be done so well in this movie is the tiny things like when Kirk says oh Spock was a part of the free speech movement in Berkeley he did a little too much LDS he just got a couple of the letters mixed up but it makes it such an iconic so funny moment because he's getting the history almost right he knows about the free speech movement in Berkeley that's pretty cool but 
not not anything about LSD. <laughs> I feel like this is me. I really related with Kirk because my memory does it, it does pretty well, but every once in a while it's just wrong. And <laughs> I really felt like Kirk in that moment. That would totally be me. <laughs> well, and we have Scotty when they're talking about the when they're talking with the plexiglass guy, and um, Scotty says, "I've traveled millions of miles," and McCoy is thousands. <laughs> <laughs> like they have no spatial awareness of how far it takes to travel Earth by plane. So there's these really funny moments. Sulu's talking about how he flew a helicopter in the academy, which is amazing. He must have had this antique lying around, this 200-year-old or like 150-year-old antique. Crazy. Okay, I, I do just want to say, though, that right now... As we are talking, there's a helicopter on Mars. Whoa. So I just want to say that that's actually happening. And so maybe in the future, we're going to have some Martian pilots. Yeah. That's literally probably going to happen. I mean, right now they're robots. But at some point, if Elon Musk is successful, we're going to have some humans on Mars pretty soon. Yeah, so. and then Sulu will be born anyway, in San Francisco yeah. and he'll start piloting those helicopters. <laughs> and we will have a Star Trek future. <laughs> yes. Okay, yes. Also, the exact change moment is hilarious when they're getting on the bus and they don't know what exact changes. Yeah. And then, okay, you you brought up Scotty. I have to say it. This is perhaps the worst thing that they do when they go back in time is Scotty is giving the formula to basically create really powerful glass that's only one inch mm -hmm. thick they can do in the 80s is have that same power but for six yeah. inches i think it's like polymers yeah i, I, don't, I don't know i can't remember the technology they're talking mm -hmm. about owner of this company they're giving him this formula in the 80s yeah. <laughs> 200 years i know early. and then and mccoy is like what what are you doing and scotty's like how do you know he didn't invent the thing and i'm like oh my god you're creating a paradox right now currently Okay, well, and, okay, yes, yes, he's creating a paradox, and as if McCoy should be okay with that answer, he's just like, yeah, sure. you're right, Scotty, I'm not going to question you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but what about doing a quick Google search to be like, huh, or ask Spock, or any of them who have tricorders, who actually invented this, and was it this random man? Yeah. No, it probably wasn't. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. <laughs> it's just like in Star Trek 2009 when Scotty creates transwarp theory only because old Spock gives it to young Scotty. It's very confusing, very much a parallel or paradox, but I guess they're just fine with it. <laughs> a paradox, a paradox, a most convenient paradox. Exactly. I mean, Picard and Worf get to sing Gilbert and Sullivan, then I get to sing Gilbert and exactly. Sullivan in the podcast. It's so, a part of Star anyway. Trek, so. <laughs> yeah, so that was really risky to me, and I... I love the confidence that Scotty has coming in. He fits right into this role as the Scottish professor who just wants a tour of this factory. Mm -hmm. He's talking to the mouse. Hello, computer. He's got a type. What a beautiful Iconic. scene. I mean, oh, so chef's good. kiss. And he's really making McCoy be his assistant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Oh, it's so fantastic. Good. I want to talk a little bit about the scene where Kirk spills the beans to Jillian at dinner. I was just going to bring okay, this up. Yeah. Yes. First of all, hilarious Kirk's reaction when he drinks beer that isn't synthahol. He's like, whoa, this is real beer. He's probably super excited. <laughs> I'd be pumped to drink real beer, probably for the first time in his life. No, Rihanna. Oh, no. They had real beer in You're Iowa. Right. Are you kidding? <laughs> he really, yeah. he really ma made his own beer. <laughs> oh, you know he did. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, he's probably like, whoa, I haven't had beer in years. This is delicious. <laughs> but he looks at it. He's like, whoa, this isn't synthahol. I liked that that was a 
a little like Shatner moment that I appreciated. Me and too. then he just goes and tells Jillian everything. I think because he does the same thing in Tomorrow is Yesterday where he's like, I'm coy. I'm going to tell you the truth because I'll sound insane and you won't believe me. But I'm still trying to get my mission done. So the easiest way is to tell you the truth. And I just find it very admirable and kind of crazy how trusting Jillian is. I mean, she talks about how she has nobody. She has only her whales pretty much. Like this is what she dedicated her whole life to, which is really sad, but also like, okay, cool. That's fair. Like she loves her whales. She loves her marine biology. And she is just immediately on board with this. Of course, she's a little skeptical, but she's like, take me back to your spaceship. She hops on when Kirk beams aboard and she ends up going to the future with them, which honestly, if I had no one and I wanted to stay with my whales, I probably would too. I mean, I don't know. I love space in the future. It'd be a pretty amazing experience, but also what a crazy decision you have to make within the span of like five minutes of, am I going to go 200 years in the future? And she's the only one who knows about these whales. So it's really good that she decided to go because what would have happened if she didn't? These whales probably would have died in like a year. Jillian is amazing. Mm -hmm. Rihanna, you are totally right. In order to create a realistic character who would actually leave their life behind to go to the future, they have to be extremely dedicated. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to say extremely dedicated. I'm going to say Jillian is a little crazy about these yeah. whales. I think she is 100% invested in them. She's addicted to these yes. whales to the point where the next morning after their date, she finds out that the whales are gone. And she <laughs> Sorry, it's so funny. <laughs> She smacks that man. <laughs> Full on slaps him in the face. <laughs> I mean, I, ha you know, we've all worked a lot of jobs. I'm trying to think what job I've worked that something you like commit physical like violence, <laughs> something like that happened that I would slap my coworker for. Right? And I can't think of a reason I would slap my coworker. No. The shoes are not on sale anymore. Smack. Like, I, I mean, I have no idea. I mean, she is just super dedicated to these whales and their well-being and i wonder like is her family are they all dead or is she estranged from right. them because of her whale <laughs> obsession like <laughs> yeah who knows what her past is but wow she's just gung-ho also i wonder if you were on this date and you were jillian how long into it would you stay because i think i would have left minute number two, you know, like as soon as he starts saying I'm from the future and all this stuff, I would have been long gone. I would not have <laughs> even picked up these men in my truck. <laughs> these random strangers in Sausalito, I would not have driven them all the way back to the city. There's no way. There's no oh, way. <laughs> You're totally right. Uh -huh. Especially Stranger danger. because one of them and one of them jumped into the tank and swam with yeah, the whales. Yeah, I mean, I would yeah. be cu curious to know why he knew that Gracie was pregnant, but I would not still pick them up and give them a ride. <laughs> uh, because Gracie knows, yeah. Brianna. <laughs> also, a quick note about that scene. Does Kirk not know what pizza is? <sighs> Because the waiter comes over and is like, what do you want? And she's like, I want a pizza. And Kirk is like 
deer in the headlights. Like, first of all, did you even read the menu? And you said you liked Italian. <laughs> so did you like forget what Italian is? He's acting like he doesn't know what food is. I think it's a uh, jab at San Francisco and the weird toppings they put on pizzas because she ordered some weird things on that pizza. And I think it's kind of like inside out when they made that joke too about how San Francisco just puts like broccoli on top of pizza. I think maybe Kirk okay, is that's like, good though. <laughs> That's that's good. I had literally broccoli on my pizza on my wedding last yeah, week. So delicious. But yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe that's why. Otherwise, there's no excuse for not knowing what pizza is, Jim Kirk. Well, and maybe he's just trying to be charming. Like it is kind of charming when you're on a date and you're like, make that yeah, two of them, you know? Yeah. I trust you enough to trust you with my food preference. <laughs> I, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, Okay, there's some other really important continuity things going on we have to Mm -hmm. talk about, like when Chekhov and Ahura are at the base in Alameda. Yeah, they're on the Enterprise. Chekhov, when he's captured, he throws his phaser at the guy (laughs) interrogating him. Chekhov says, who needs this piece of valuable technology? Not me. And gives it to this guy in the 80s. And he just has it now. Oh, my God ridiculous yeah Yeah. so that was a huge issue for me (laughs) otherwise that scene was great i also thought we talked about mccoy earlier and his hatred of 21st century medicine and i love the dialysis scene where he gives the woman and she grows a new kidney that i mean amazing yeah and mccoy is again talking about how barbaric medicine is he saves Chekhov lickety split just like that i love it because he's so mad when they're in the elevator and these two other doctors are talking about a procedure and he's like Ugh, like you don't have to do it that way like why would you and, and then later he's like just repair the artery <laughs> you know and like all this stuff <laughs> of course like it's crazy new technology but i just yeah again we're seeing mccoy's paranoia and fear of old ancient medicine and how he just swoops in and it's also like crazy though because this lady who grew a kidney is this medical miracle that also leads traces this continuity i mean yes it's nice that you saved this lady with their kidney but oh my god that's not good for the continuity or for the terra incognita that they're supposed to be i mean you know she left her body to science (laughs) (laughs) you bet you she did yeah all of this comes to a head when the whales are released the enterprise gets them the whalers see the bird of prey yeah another huge uh like what and of course they're like turn around turn around i also love how um motivated whalers are man the whales got released like in two seconds later their ship is on it they're like here we go there's some whales let's go kill them like that is so intense yes they are dedicated whalers they are alerted to these fresh yeah, whales. and then alerted to the bird of prey <laughs> <laughs> crazy it all works out. Jillian's aboard and they are going back to the future. This time it is heavier. The bird of prey is heavier because obviously the whales and the water mm-hmm. are on it. And so I was listening to Sulu count down the time and they only go to warp 8.1 before traveling back and doing the slingshot. And so does it still even work? Right. Like how how do they make that back? Well, I don't know. It's, it's only because it's, yeah. Spock made his best guess. And I love, yes, once again. again, Spock doing amazing 
things. And I love this sort of uh, hype up that McCoy gives him. He's like, you got to just make a guess, Spock. Like, I know it's not in your nature, but you have to do it. And then Kirk later says, I trust you because any of your guesses are better than any of our studying and our research. And I agree. Spock is just, he's running calculations in his brain all the time. Like, he's got this. And he does. He succeeds and helps them get back to the future at the exact time when they left. It's incredible. And then the whales talk to the probe and it's all good. What a crazy ending that they just accomplished. I would maybe have put the whales, I don't know, when like Starfleet was founded, like gone back to like the 22nd century and let them them create a new whale society. (laughs) So then, you know, let them rebreed in this new earth. But whatever. I'm also wondering when they drop the whales off back in the bay, when they're back in their present time. Is the water okay for them? Because, I mean, I think about even just having a fish, if you don't keep track of, like, the pH levels in your tank and everything, that fish will die. (laughs) And the whales are used to an ocean of, like, certain temperatures and, uh, like, different kind of chemicals and levels. And then to be traveling 200 years in the future... (laughs) I just don't know how much our ocean is. And did the baby, did Gracie, like, did Gracie's baby survive this journey? (laughs) I mean, good thing they have Jillian there. She probably was able to calculate and, like, help them get to their right waters, but I don't know because they just sort of dropped them off. I'm hoping that there's some medicine we didn't see. Like McCoy injected them with some like you're gonna be okay meds or, or yeah, but something. He's, but he's a doctor, like, oh, not a marine biologist. You're right. Maybe he worked with Jillian behind. Yeah, the there scenes. we go. <laughs> okay, one last thing I want to talk about before we wrap this up, and it kind of goes along with our Spock and Sarek conversation that's always mm-hmm. ongoing because. This is the first time Sarek says to Spock at the end of this movie, they've all received their medals, they're super happy, everyone's going their separate ways, and Kirk's been demoted to captain. Mm-hmm. And Sarek says that he has finally approved a Spock joining Starfleet. Wow. I, just, I, I, I spent about 30 minutes doing some math because I realized that Spock was in Starfleet he had joined 18 years before his five-year mission with Kirk. Oof. That was the year, well, it was the star date 3842.4, which is the year 2266. Mm-hmm. By the time Sarek approves of Spock joining Starfleet, <laughs> Spock had already been serving for 38 oh years. Oh my God, Sarek, come on, bud. years. Yeah. So, I mean, if you have daddy issues, at least your dad did not wait 38 years to tell you that he's proud of you. So, poor Poor Spock. Spock. And I just have to call out that, come on, Sarek, you can do better than this. For real. Um, not to end on a sad note, but that's all right. I, we, I've had a joyous time, oh, a blast, talking about time travel with you, Rihanna, and I really think we have a, you know, as much as we're worried about our future, we have a bright path ahead of us these next couple of weeks talking about time travel in the rest of Star yes, Trek. Yes, and we're thrilled because we get to cover yet another time travel movie coming up for our Next Generation podcast next week. We also get to Woo. cover a bunch of fun Next Generation time travel episodes. So please look forward to. That that we'll be posting a watch list here pretty soon and just all of you know there is a bright future if you keep working hard keep being kind to each other be like edith keeler be like jillian taylor and be like that random lady roberta yes absolutely (laughs) thank you so much for joining me rihanna what a great episode and i hope to see many more slingshots in the future Thank you for listening to the Duras Sisters podcast. 
please tune in next week for the second episode of our time travel series, where Ashlyn and Rihanna will discuss the time travel episodes in Star Trek The Next Generation. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. And for more content, check us out on TikTok and Tumblr. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. By donating any amount per month, you can become a monthly patron and unlock our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, Star Trek Trivia, and the animated series. You can find all of this and more at patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura Sisters podcast at gmail.com. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith, and our outro, Wars Revenge, is by Arillo Voltaire. If you're browsing the communication logs and happen to notice that condolences have already been sent to your next of kin, you might just be a red shirt. <laughs> <laughs>